Hello and welcome to episode 100 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today, we hit a huge milestone on the podcast as we celebrate our 100th, technically our 101st, because again, we started with episode zero, but we are celebrating today our 100th episode of the podcast, and in order to celebrate, we're going to be doing the biggest list that we have ever done, uh, our top 10 films of all time. Uh, but before we get to that, Scott, how are you doing? How does it feel to reach 100 episodes on this year's show? Yeah, it's actually even more than 101 because we we did do a couple special episodes that weren't technically numbered mm -hmm. as well. But no, it feels good. I think that when we started this two and a half years ago now, especially when early on when we were doing episodes every two weeks in the longer format and you know, I was like, getting, I, I never even thought about getting to 100 yeah. episodes. Uh, I didn't really think about how long we're doing the podcast for. I mean, I didn't. I wouldn't have said that there's no way that we were doing this in two and a half years' time. But I think that it, if you, if you, at that time when we were doing, I mean, really only doing like 25 episodes a year, I'd been like, four years. Oof, that's a long time. I don't know if we're going to be doing it four years from now. But two and a half years later, we're still doing it. We're at episode 100. We have other podcasts that we sort of do along with some like it's got as well with the various countdown series and champs lunch, which I think has been picking up recently as well with what we're doing with that. And overall it's awesome. Like I think this is such a big part. I mean, watching movies has become such a big part of my life. It was even before we started the podcast. I mean, uh, it was one of the reasons why we started doing the podcast is because it had become such a, I mean, it was already a big part of your life and it had become more of a part of my life as well. And um, it's been really nice to have, this as a sort of con like the one constant in my life besides just getting crushed by work until <laughs> until, until uh coronavirus of course but yeah but yeah no, now I the, now the other constant the other constant in my life is that i don't go outside ever but you know it's uh no it's exciting to be doing this i'm excited to embarrass myself with my top 10 list <laughs> and i'm excited that the audience will get some some diversity uh, a little bit stronger diversity in terms of when movies came out on your list but i'll be representing all of our all of our fellow fellow millennials who have only only watched movies in the last 10 years uh, really really well here i think Look, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, let, yeah. let's be perfectly clear. Like, your this is our favorites episode. This is not the objectively yeah, I, greatest movies ever. This and yes. your favorites are your favorites. I, I think everyone's favorites say something about them. So I wouldn't want anyone to like be dishonest about their favorites because they're you know they're afraid of not being accepted for for whatever reason. So uh, oh, totally. And I definitely have some some movies that I wouldn't even begin to call best movies of all time on my list mm -hmm. um that strong favorites that are just like i think the way that you describe little women is just like a nice a nice warm hug uh watching these movies yeah. are so, some of the ones that i have on my list are certainly certainly like that sure uh yeah i totally get that and yeah scott as far as this podcast goes i don't i don't know that i thought about us ever getting to this point you know I, i've done a lot of creative endeavors and stuff like this. Yeah. Like I had my radio show and stuff back totally. in the day or, and, and whatever. And, you know, I was able to carry that through for a while, but you know, there were just a lot of moving parts involved with doing this thing, you know, every two weeks, let alone every week, like we do now. Um, but we, we've made it work and I'm glad. I mean, the thing I, I tell people, I've had several friends and acquaintances and stuff start podcasts recently and few have yeah. asked me about advice. And 
my my couple things that I tell them is like, first, as long as you enjoy doing it, keep doing it. Like that is the most important thing right there. And on it's a not for other people. It's really yes. not. Uh, I mean, of course we want other people to listen. We hope that everyone who listens enjoys, but like sure. on that related note, like don't even look at the stats. Like don't look at how many people are listening to your podcast, whatever. Yeah. Like Scott, you, you, you can attest, like you have the stat access. I never ask you about it. Like I never ask you how many people are listening to our episodes. I don't think it's probably a huge number. And that's, that's not the point. Like, again, we're, yeah. we're doing this because because we enjoy doing it. We hope you enjoy it. Again, we hope people listen. It's not like a, we just want to be shouting into a bubble every week for no one to listen. Yeah. But um, I, I think it's important that like you do this for yourself ab above everything else, because um, otherwise I think you can become pretty disillusioned quickly. Cause a lot of times it takes a long time to get the, to like grow these sorts of creative things. Like it can be, it can be years before you actually get the recognition that you set out for. So it takes yeah. perseverance. It takes patience. Uh, and I think an easy way to, to persevere, to have patience is just to not even concern yourself with how yeah. many people are listening. And so that's why I never ask about it, but yeah, no, yeah. It, I mean, if you're, if you're doing it for the views, we would have quit a long time ago. Yeah. Let's be really honest about it. But uh, no, we do it because we enjoy it. And in spite of you know the last couple of months being maybe more difficult in terms of the movies we're, we're watching to review on the podcast. And sometimes I'm, especially as I've continued to get reminders about what movies were supposed to be coming out on certain weekends. I'm like, wow, I really don't know why yeah. uh, we're doing this some, some weeks. But no, even in those moments, once I watch the film and talking about it, it's like, it's a nice outlet. Yeah, but yeah, it's been a great hundred plus episode, Scott. I wouldn't have wanted wanted to do it with anyone else. I wouldn't wanted to wouldn't have wanted to argue about uh, yesterday or I don't know what are what are some under other the silver lake or... under the silver lake a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. There's been a couple other ones along the way. There's been a few. relatively few though. We've kept it civil. Yeah, we we have kept yeah. it civil, which is good. Um, but with that, Scott, I think we can move on and get into the real reason we are here: our top ten favorite movies of all time. Um, this is going to work basically like our, our usual countdown episodes work. Yeah. Um, one change is that we don't foresee there being any overlap in our top tens, at least. So we won't have yeah. to worry about like waiting to talk about certain movies, whatever. We can just talk about all of them in the moment. Um, and as we do on our countdown episodes. We also like to note our 11 through 20 choices as well, because there's always a lot of movies that get left out that, you know, we if you're like me, you feel bad about leaving certain movies out. So even if we can't give like full, um, you know, discussions to each of these movies, um, it, it's it's fun to, to note, uh, you know, the, the movies that just missed out on your list. So, Scott, yeah. with that, why don't you take it away with your uh, 20 through 11 choices of favorite movies of all time? Yeah, let's do it. So number 20, a 2019 film that I think was the the film that I watched the most last year as Booksmart, directed by Olivia Wilde, her directorial debut with Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein as leads there. I, I just love going back to this one. I love sh like showing this movie to other people as well. And so it really felt wrong to not include this somewhere in, in a and certainly in a top 50, but even further up the list than that, even though I think it, I don't even remember where I think it was like number seven or eight last year. But uh, again, th there won't be six movies from 2019 ahead of this one. It's just because this movie is so easy to go back to so easy to watch. And I watched it like five or six times last year. It was so good. Uh, number 19, it, I think we'll have overlap on, on the list here Inglorious Bastards. I, I debated heavily where Tar like what and which like what and where Tarantino would, would come in on, on my list. And I did go back and forth a lot between Inglorious Bastards and Pulp Fiction and landed on Inglorious Bastards, maybe just because I think I just connect with it more because 
obviously I, I, it was more contemporaneous with my life than, than Pulp Fiction. I think so. I think I connect with it more that way, but uh, yeah, Inglourious Bastards, some really amazing performances in that film and, and probably, probably Tarantino's best with maybe the exception of, of Pulp Fiction. Um, number 18 is another comedy. A lot of comedies in my 11 through 20. I'll, I'll put it that way. Uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, like the best Christmas movie of all time. Uh, it's really an incredible film. I think it's my number 34. You're number 34. Okay, I didn't get overlap there. Um, I think that Nat, like this movie, probably honestly the oldest movie on my list from, I think it's from the 80s even. It's just like such a or 88, I think. Yeah, yeah, just such a such such a funny movie. Um, I remember like this being like the raunchy comedy that uh, that I was allowed to watch as a children. No, it is. There's a there isn't there like yeah, a no, no, no. scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we still watch when my family watched it at Christmas Eve. We always watch the TV edit. Like so, you're That's, right. That doesn't surprise me at all that you guys watch the TV edit. That's yeah. <laughs> that feels on par. But there's nothing wrong with that because I think even in the TV edit, the, the yes, there's all types of comedy in this film sure. because there's definitely some R-rated comedy in it for sure. But uh, there's comedy of all types, and it's I mean it's freaking hilarious film with Chevy Chase and the whole Griswold gang uh, in there. I think a lot of the Chevy Chase National Lampoon's movies are hilarious, and I think Christmas Vacation is is the pinnacle of that. Number seventeen is a movie from 2017 with uh one one of our favorites on the podcast margot robbie that's i tanya uh definitely for me as i I get further away from 2017 i think this is like definitely the my favorite film i think it was my favorite film at the time as well we we didn't do that i guess we didn't technically do this as a podcast episode but i remember when we did kind of the precursor to the podcast you're talking about the radio show like uh a special edition Mm -hmm. radio show where we counted down our like you picked Lady Bird, I believe. Then, yeah. There's, did I really pick Lady Bird? I, well, really I don't doubt. know that you had seen I Tonya at that point because I don't think you watched it until we had to. Talk oh, because we reviewed it on the podcast. Yeah, That's right. That was our first episode. That's actually a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. So maybe it was Lady Bird at the time, but Blade Runner 2049 was up there, and I'm not sure what else had made it into that list. I don't even remember at this point. But once I'd seen all the movies that I uh, from 2017 that I had seen, like Phantom Thread, I Tonya, like I Tonya, kind of rose above all of it, and. I think it's really a, a milestone for for biopics in, in terms of style, substance, and performance. I think it really just has it all. Um, one of the things that just struck me so remarkably about that film is thinking how ridiculous Paul Walter Hauser's performance was uh, in the film as sort of like this idiotic friend of um, I forget I forget um, Jeff Galula. Yeah, Jeff Galula. Yeah, An idiotic friend of of Jeff Galula in the film. I was like, "There's no way this is real. This feels like a caricature." And then getting the side by sides in the credits uh, of the of the real life interviews of this person, realizing that he nailed it. Like it's amazing. Um, and love Itania. Couldn't recommend it highly enough. Number sixteen is a movie that I I feel like I like wanted to push up higher on my list, and and maybe given enough deliberation, it would have made it higher on my list. And that's a movie from 1999, uh, one of the greatest action movies of all time, The Matrix. Uh, I got to re I got to see this on its 20 year sort of re-release in the theaters for a week. And I got to see it in IMAX uh, here in Boston, which was really cool because obviously I didn't see it when it came out in 1999 uh, and getting to see that on the on the big screen again. Me like, yep, yo, Keanu Reeves, the Wachowski siblings. I don't I don't even know what you technically because I mean, they were the Wachowski brothers at the time. But um, mm-hmm. now they they're, they're they identified differently. Yeah. yeah um well i think they're actually non-binary but yeah yeah so that is just an i think it's an incredible watermark for action movies and it's definitely not a perfect film but i think you see the dna of that in so many things even beyond just something like john wick like i think you just see the dna of that film and in so many future action movies 
numbers 15 is an and 14 for that matter they're both animated films it's a shame i put them next to each other i didn't really think about that but uh number 15 is spider-man into the spider-verse from a couple years ago i mean like one of the best animated movies of all time uh it's just really phenomenal both in terms of what it was able to do in its style of animation but also what it's able to do with characters and representation on screen and the voice acting and create a story that I think it's one of those things you talk about, like timeless stories, right? Like I think the story of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, like a hundred years from now, like maybe that's an, a ridiculous thing to say, but like it feels like the, that story is just going to age so well. Whereas like some of the some of the greatest stories of all time, I think naturally will age well. But like you think about going away from movies, like the the people in literature or whatever you want to talk about that really stand the test of time are, are things with themes and motifs that really aren't, um, I guess, specific to. A certain period of time and, and it feels like an, a, a narrative and a theme of like anyone can wear the mask anyone can be a hero um if they have the right attitude if they want to be i think is really going to stand the test of time and certainly has uh, since since 2018 when it came out only a couple of years ago we'll see maybe, maybe when we do our our you know an, another list 10 years from now we can talk about whether spider-man and the spider-verse held up or not yeah. maybe maybe it's sequel will come into the conversation or something that'll come out in the next couple of years but uh yeah no it's, it's an incredible film number 14 a little bit older, but also an animated film. Scott, one that you were like really close to watching the other day, but convinced you to watch a different one instead. That's Spirited Away, number 14. Uh, probably Hayao Miyazaki's greatest work in my, um, you know, by my by my judgment. But I mean, there's so many great Miyazaki Ghibli movies to choose that are awesome. I mean, I've seen you. I think you've watched two of them now or three, maybe. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yeah, two. And, and you love both of them. And that warms my heart because... I've been trying to convince you to, to watch Ghibli movies for a while. Not, not intensely. I haven't been like nagging you about it. Like some of the TV shows that I nag you to watch. Um, but it was really, it, when you messaged me about, about wanting to watch a Ghibli film and asked me which one I should watch, I was like, Oh shit, this is awesome. Like you're, you're going to do it. And the fact that you're already, it feels like really, they're really resonating with you uh, speaks volumes to what the type of creator that Miyazaki is. And I think that there's, I think there's something for everyone in his, in his uh in his filmography and in the movies that he's worked on and uh spirited away is one that i think strikes that right balance of coming of age fantasy um yes very it's some some very strong anime tropes in it as well that really resonate with me that you know may or may not resonate with the next person but the, the remarkable thing about i think miyazaki as a whole is that you know eventually you know one of his films is probably going to be on in one of your favorite movies ever just because of the type of filmmaker that he is yeah. um and spirited away was that for me number 13 Another comedy that, again, felt like I should maybe put this higher on my list, but I just couldn't justify it. But Mean Girls, a uh, classic. I'm glad you had this in there. I was hoping that you did have it. Yeah, on. no, I'm not going to. This the, Look again, like, if we're making a best of all time list, this wouldn't get anywhere near it. It'd but, be close, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, just in, in the in the same zip code, maybe, but not quite yeah. not quite in the stadium. Uh, but Mean Girls is amazing. I wish Lindsay Lohan hadn't driven her career off a cliff a couple of years after this, but uh lindsey lohan's amazing in this i mean amanda seyfried uh rachel, rachel mcadams, McAdams yeah. tina fey i mean there's so tina many i mean even amy, great yeah yeah and then amy poehler in her very brief and uh-huh. hilarious as as rachel mcadams mom it's just like this comedy just has everything and I, I remember it this used to be a movie although it's not as much anymore but it used to be a movie that i'd watch every single year at least once um it's fallen it's fallen off a little bit recently and and might be replaced by book smart on that film that i have to watch once once a year list uh that it, it, that, that list grows over time but uh book smart might might edge ahead of it over time but it, it feels again like kind of a not timeless in its themes but timeless in its comedy like it's so quotable there's just really funny stuff throughout the film and maybe it's because 
I grew up with the film, like watching it when I was in middle school, high school, college, that it like maybe it wouldn't have resonated with me the same if I'd if it had come out when I was adult, an adult. But because of the timing of it, because Lindsay Lohan was, I mean, awesome in 2004, right? Like I loved The Parent Trap. Herbie Fully Loaded is like a funny enough movie. Like she did okay in that. Freaky Friday uh, is great. Yeah, Freaky Friday is great. Like she she was on a roll. And and this, for me, for Lindsay Lohan, just feels like this was the pinnacle of her career. It's a shame that this is the pinnacle of her career, but um, it, it is, and it's great. It's a true, it. it's, it's a true cult classic. It honestly is. Like oh, for absolutely. people of our generation, yeah. this is the film, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I guess I, I, I struggle to think about what the equivalent might be for like the, ne the next generation. I mean, maybe Booksmart would Booksmart, be there. I don't yeah, know. No, I think that's um, the one, yeah. Yeah, over time, I think. I don't know if Booksmart's quite there yet, but I mean, hopefully well, yeah. over time, Booksmart does does become that because it's a worthy replacement i think mean girls took a while too to get to where it was so. yeah i'm not a good judge of that just because i i mean i've loved that movie for for so long but uh -huh. um no I, that, that totally makes sense i mean it's a freaking isn't like a musical or a play now on broadway or something like that yeah, or at least it was yeah, yeah. uh <laughs> they made a sequel but i think it was like direct to dvd or it something was, yeah. <laughs> probably com complete trash i don't think it had any any of the same cast probably, yeah uh number 12 is another more recent film our our Shared number one. It might never happen again in the future, <laughs> uh, but our shared number one from 2018, Searching, a great film, with John Cho. And, and kind of like talking about how I was talking about with Booksmart and being just a really fun movie to show to people and introduce yeah. to people. I think Searching is, is like right up there with like... Totally. Because most people haven't heard of it. Like that's just the mm -hmm. truth. Like most people who aren't like super, like aren't on film Twitter or aren't super into movies like we are, haven't heard of this film. And it's a shame because it's a, an amazing film. And I just love the chance to introduce people to this movie all the time and almost almost universally to people that have recommended it to or showed it to they've loved it maybe not Same. as much as i do right. but they loved it uh because it's really good and i think that it's one of the rare movies where in like the first five minutes of the film like you just know how good it is like you just know how good the movie is going to be because of what they're able to do without a single line of dialogue um and the rest of it the rest of the other like i don't know i don't remember how long the movie is but the other hour 40 minutes we'll say the next 100 minutes of it uh, lives up to that quality of the, of the first five minutes too and uh, not only is it a really really strong opening but it's a really satisfying ending too and really ties together some of the some of the threads you've gotten throughout the film about the relationship between um you know this father and daughter and and things that are going on in the background and a lot of that is conveyed without dialogue which i think is just really it makes it even more powerful in some ways um and it makes for a great film and then my number 11, I lied. This is the this is the oldest film on my list. I've forgotten that I put this on my list. But I mean, like, is any list proper if you don't have some Godfather film on it? Uh, I chose part two. I chose oh, the, uh, yeah, part two. Because I, I, I really like, I know this isn't for everyone, but I really like the dueling narratives of part two. I think there's certain Look. parts in part one that are stronger than part two. And I think unlike part one, part two feels like it drags on a little too long, which is, I mean, there's all these movies are like over three hours. So what does that even mean? But um, I think that it's really cool to see the sort of juxtaposition of a younger, you know, I mean, it is Robert and you're playing it, right? But a younger Marlon Brando's character, you know, young, a younger Don Corleone um, juxtaposed to Michael's rise to power. Like they're both well, rising to power. Sorry. It is Robert De Niro, but go ahead. Isn't that what I said? No, you said Marlon Brando, but I, I, yeah, I know what you meant. Yeah, I said Robert De Niro playing a young Marlon Brando. Oh, I'm sorry, maybe I you said Marlon Brando playing again. I misunderstood. Uh, no, I, I, if I said that, I didn't mean that. Okay. But yeah, no, it's it's interesting to see this because I think one of the cool things that of what you should do with dueling narratives, and a lot of things, a lot of movies just like don't get this. They just have dueling narratives because it's like a cool literary, like a cool device to use in your film. But like they're actually, they really want you to think about what you know, what Don, you know, what Don Corleone 
is doing when he was younger, rising to power, and what Michael is doing when he's rising to power. And I think that not enough films use that device in a way that's really effective. But I think Godfather Part Two is like probably like the standard on how to actually use that dueling narratives point um, and to actually use it to good effect because it doesn't feel choppy. It doesn't feel like it's cutting at the wrong moments like a lot of films do that do this. It's doing it the right way. It's doing it really effectively. And look, it, it, it's a movie that really does just feel like a direct continuation from part one. And um, to me, it's it's hard to even separate the two. I'd almost think I almost think about them together. But yeah, there's some really powerful moments, powerful scenes. And it's tough to pick between the two of them. I didn't want to put both on my list, though. It feels weird to put both on my list. Yeah, I mean, we're at the point, honestly, now, I think, where if you ask most film fans, I think more film fans will tell you that they prefer Godfather 2 to Godfather 1. I honestly do really? think it is more beloved, even though Godfather 1 is the one that started it all, right? I, totally. I think most people appreciate, you know, a lot of what you're talking about there. But yeah, Scott, other than Spirited Away, obviously, which I haven't seen, the, you know, I can't complain about anything in your uh, 11 through 20 there. That's that's an excellent, excellent list. Uh, all of the movies you mentioned there. Um I, I really, really like. Yeah, um, I thought about putting Venom on there, but uh, just <laughs> number 21. Yeah. Uh, no, and I, and I resonate with what you're saying, too, about, you know, getting sentimental picks in there, too. Like, yeah. you know, movies like, for me, like Happy Death Day or Band Slam, like, these are movies that are, are far from classics, but, like, are some of the movies that I have watched the most in my life. And so yeah. I did, you know, very seriously consider putting them in there, and they are in my top 50. Um but um, yeah, they, they didn't quite make my 20. But uh, with that, I'll, I'll go to my 20 through 11 now. Um, number 20 is Rio Bravo, um, a movie that um, I have actually watched like three times in the last year. One time for, for trivia purposes, two times just because I wanted to. And it's in that time, it's shot up my list. I think this is my favorite Western of all time. This is a film from 1959 directed by Howard Hawks. And honestly, I just described this as like, a film that has everything. Uh, it has great action. It has comedy. It has uh, romance between John Wayne's character and Angie Dickinson as feathers. It has some really suspenseful sequences where they're kind of going through the town searching for people. Uh, it has great music. There's an incredible scene where Ricky, Ricky Nelson, um, Walter Brennan, and Dean Martin just are singing in the sheriff's office, which is just like iconic. Um, and it has like, you know, great movie stars. It has John Wayne, Dean Martin, Ricky Nelson, like I said, just just being great movie stars. It has memorable dialogue. Like it, it really is just does just have everything. And even for a movie that's over 50 years old, it's still great. And, and it, it, it's one of the like original hangout movies, mm-hmm. in my opinion, because so much of it, even though there is this plot about, hey, they're waiting for these guys to come to town to try to break their brother out of prison. Like that happens in like the last 20 minutes of the movie. The rest of the movie is them just hanging out in the town, waiting around for these people to get there. And so I like it for that reason too, because obviously I am a big fan of like the hangout movies, but um, yeah. And number- I mean, look, I'm, I'm surprised that you have the, the, the bravery to bring up a John Wayne film after he's yeah. been canceled recently. After so. he has been canceled. That yeah, is true. Good, yeah. You got, I guess you. art from artist. Um, but yeah. that's, that's a discussion for another show. Number 19, Scott, my funniest movie of all time for me, just celebrated his 40th anniversary airplane from 1980 um classic spoof of disaster movies um again another movie that just hasn't aged a day like that the, every single joke still land. like it is amazing to me to think about like how hard movies work nowadays to get just one or two laughs to think yeah. about how many jokes are in airplane and how many of them like actually hit and like actually make you laugh like the the percentage the proportion is like just unreal um and 
yeah, it's it's just that madcap approach. So we're just going to throw as many jokes at you as we possibly can, and you're bound to find something you like in here. Um, it works. Like the kitchen sink approach really works. I think for for this type of, of comedy, and it's a classic. And if you haven't watched it, like you're gonna you're gonna love it. it you're gonna howl with laughter. Um, yeah, it's remember? hilarious. That that movie is absolutely absolutely hilarious. It's oh, yeah. not. It's um. It, I I saw. Did I actually? Did we watch it together one time? I feel like maybe, we did. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I feel like we watched that together before. But yeah, no, good, good picks for 2019. I didn't say anything on Rio Brava, but uh, one of the, one of my favorite westerns as well. Yeah. Um, my next four are going to sound really familiar because they were actually my top four from when we did the best of the decade episode, and they just happened to come right here four in a row. And when I made this oh, list, right, because um, right, when we did our best of the decade episode, it was like six months before Little Women came out. I was like, yeah. what? Spoilers. Spoilers. I was going to yeah. say there is one movie which since uh, since beat yeah. them all, but number eighteen, Boyhood, uh, Richard Linklater's twelve years in the making film, uh, tracing the the coming of age of this kid Mason. I think if you're talking about coming of age, like if you're talking about an embodiment of the genre of coming of age movies, like this is the ultimate, this, this is the one because you're literally watching, came of age. <laughs> yeah. You're watching this kid come of age. I love the, the, the sort of idea of the movie that your life is more about these small moments, these mon- moments that seem mundane at the time, but then really stick with you more than the big occasions do. I think that is so true about life. Like I, I, I think th- after watching this movie, I, I was like, yeah, that is exactly like, you know, that is what that is what life is like. And in particular, this time in your life, being in high school, being in college, like the things that you remember the most are often, um, you know, these little mundane things. Um, and and those are the person things that kind of make you the person that you are. And Ethan Hawke, Patricia Arquette, amazing cast in this as well. Um, number 17, The Florida Project, um, Sean Baker's um, amazing sort of slice of life film about these people living uh, on the edge of Disney World in this rundown motel. Amazing movie that sheds light on a group of underrepresented people in pop culture. Like these people exist and, you know, systemic poverty is a huge issue in America. And this movie like takes a really, um, you know, clear eyed look at that and and kind of looks at, hey, here are the little joys that, um, you know, that these people have to find in their lives. And, you know, in particular, by framing it through the eyes of this child played by Brooklyn Prince, Mooney, like you're able to sort of pick up on some of the little joys of their lives, but also, you know, the movie certainly doesn't shy away from, uh, you know, the, the turmoil and the troubles that come with this life. Um, and it's, it's a bittersweet, joyful, heartbreaking and funny and what just wonderful movie. Um, it really, it really just makes you feel alive. And that's, that's something that I, uh, really treasure in movies. So a great work from Sean Baker, um, number 15 it, or number 16, rather spotlight, um, directed by Tom McCarthy, best picture winner about, uh, the Boston Globes, how they, how they uncover the Catholic church, uh, child molestation scandal, just one of those, you know, incredibly engrossing, um, you know, journalistic like thrillers. It has uh, some of the most un- 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 some of the most unostentatious filmmaking, which I love about it. Even though this is like an Oscar Beatty film, it, it doesn't make a big deal about itself at all. It just lets the story speak for itself, and the actors are all on board with this. Like no one is doing like, "Hey, I am out here trying to win an Oscar." They're all they all know what's going on, and they all um, play their roles you know, really well from Mark Ruffalo, Lee Schreiber, um, Rachel McAdams, Stanley Tucci, just great cast across the board. Um, and, and this is one that shouldn't be as rewatchable as it is, but it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, not a, not a heavy movie at all. Don't worry. <laughs> number 15, the Lego movie, my number one of the decade back when we did the episode. I think this movie, you know, in addition to just being incredibly funny and ingenious, also has some really 
wonderful comments about creativity and um, childhood and, and the type of things that we should value uh, in society and that maybe rigid structure and the way the way society is organized creatives and things like that sometimes get lost in the mold i think that um that this movie has a lot more to say than maybe people would expect or, or give it credit for so I, I really love what uh phil lord and chris miller did here um, not a, not a movie for the current moment everything is not awesome <laughs> yeah fair um number 14 the dark knight uh, this is a movie that I think will come up some more. Um, I, I think that's fair to say. This is, uh, I think, Christopher Nolan's best film. I don't have too much to say because we just did an episode about it a few weeks ago on our Nolan yeah. Countdown series. We just so. talked to, for two hours about it yeah. the other day. Go, go listen to that, but it's an amazingly epic comic book movie, probably the best villain of all time with Heath Ledger's Joker and just a really interesting sort of morality play wrapped in a superhero movie. So I love it. Um, number 13, Pulp Fiction. Um, you mentioned it, Scott. Quentin Tarantino's, the film that really put him on the map back from 1994, this um, wild uh, intertwining t crime story, you know, that, that focuses on several different characters, several different stories. Not everything works in the film. I mean, I do think the Bruce Willis part might be the weakest part of the movie probably, but just the, the ingenuity, the amazing dialogue. I mean, one of the most quotable movies of all time. Um, the the way he blends comedy and violence and these outrageous you know characters and per, uh, performances. Samuel L. Jackson, John Travolta, Ving Rhames, just uh, Uma Thurman, just just wonderful cast. Um, and you understand why this movie was um, you know put Tarantino on the map because it really was a br breath of fresh air at the time, and it still feels like there's there's still really not anyone who is making movies like Tarantino or on the like Tarantino that are on the level of, of what Tarantino can do. So well, no one makes a gimp scene anymore in film. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, that's maybe not the strongest part of the film, but uh, number 12 uh, is quiz show. This is uh, Robert Redford um, drama from 19, also from 1994 um, about a quiz show scandal, the classic quiz show scandal from the 1950s on this quiz show called 21 that occurred. Um, where this basically this Harvard professor, Charles Van Doren, played by Rafe Fiennes, was given the answers, was fed the answers. And it started as sort of a, a plot to get this Jewish guy off of the show, uh, played by John Turturro in an amazing performance as Herb Stemple. And, you know, uh, and Van Doren eventually became, you know, sort of addicted to getting the answers. And they, the the producers of the show, loved having him as their champion, you know, this you know, white American elite from an elite family, rich guy. Um, and, and so there's some really interesting uh, class critiques uh, going on here. And it's just a, a really, again, a really engrossing thriller. And, and eventually uh, Rob Morrow as this lawyer for the House of Representatives gets involved and he starts investigating uh, cheating scandals and um, just amazing acting, great dialogue by Paul Atanasio, who's a former film critic. He wrote the script here. Um, there's some amazing scenes between Van Doren and Rob Morrow's character and between Van Doren and his father, played by Paul Schofield in an Oscar-nominated performance. Um, this is a movie that, unfortunately, just kind of people don't talk about anymore, but it, it's great. It, it is a really, really great film, um, and Robert Redford directs it well. Number 11, Scott, I went the other way. The, the Godfather is my number 11, the original Godfather from wow. 1972. Um, Canceled. Not yeah, right I, I don't know what there is to say about this movie that hasn't been said. It is... You know, if you're talking objective greatest movies of all time, it's in the top five for sure. Um, it just Frank, there's never been another crime epic like this. Francis Ford Coppola, everything. Um, 
fits together perfectly. It's this amazing story of the American dream. I think this is this and one of the movies in my top 10 are probably the two greatest films about America ever made, in my opinion. And this movie is about what it takes to, to achieve the American dream, and particularly in the context of, of immigrants, right? Because that's, that's what the Corleone family are. And watching the descent of Al Pacino's Michael Corleone as this guy who starts out so I'll never get involved with this life of crime and then really ends up having no choice after, um, you know, the police and, um, you know, uh, American society and other uh, crime families come come for his family. And, and he has to put family first. And um, yeah, the, the film still still holds up to this day. I saw it on the big screen a couple of years ago and it was, you know, a, a transcendent experience, as you can imagine. So. Uh, the Godfather can't believe it didn't make my top ten, honestly. But um, it's it's uh, if it's only it had been better. It's as good as films get, uh, and so that's my eleven through twenty. Um, Very good list. Thank you. Uh, shall we get into it, Scott? I thought were you not done? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's the show. Um, all right, uh, number ten, Scott, take it away. Number ten. I, I'm realizing as I as I like. M- look back at my like list and, and do some like meta analysis of it that uh, this is going to be the last, you know, well, I should say like traditional, I don't even know if traditional is the right word, but last real comedy uh, on my list. And uh, that, is, okay, I was going to make a joke, but I'll decide I won't do it. Uh, my number 10 is Silver Linings Playbook. It's uh, I had to have a Jennifer Lawrence film somewhere in here as she is one of my favorite actresses. And even if it doesn't happen to include Bradley Cooper, who is not one of my favorite actors, although he is starting to really, uh, to really grow on me a little bit with A Star is Born. And I thought he was pretty good in The Mule, too, although it was a relatively minor role. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but no, Silver Linings Playbook is like, if someone asks me what my favorite romantic comedy is, like, it's not even close. Like, this is it. Like, it's not, I don't have to give anything a second thought. This is an amazing comedy. It's a David O. Russell film. I think, you know, I've been hot and cold on, on David O. Russell. I didn't think American Hustle was that good. And yeah. Joy was fine. Like, Jennifer Lawrence's performance was good in Joy, but that was really the only thing remarkable about it but yeah i mean jennifer lawrence had her run with david o russell after this and you can understand why because the w- what they're able to make here with the, with this film and you what they're able to do with this you know with a pretty traditional romantic comedy genre and they're able to make it feel fresh and and talk about some really serious issues and do some really interesting things narratively and then and then have it kind of tie up in the end and have a really good feel good ending while also kind of making i think some some cracks at 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 itself, even like kind of making fun of itself a little bit towards the end as well. I think it does it extremely well. And, and again, like if someone asked me, it, it said that they wanted to watch a romantic comedy and they asked me what they should watch. I'd, I'd tell them this. It'd be the first thing that I'd, I'd recommend, you know, Jennifer Lawrence and, and Bradley Cooper are great, but I think Robert De Niro is really good. Is it, um, um, I'm forgetting Robert De Niro's wife's name. She was Jackie Weaver. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Jackie. Okay. That's actually not who I thought it was. Jackie Weaver is funny. Chris Tucker is funny as well. Yeah. Uh, and the film and the whole cast is, is really good. And, and this is probably my favorite David O. Russell movie. I'm trying to think if any would have any would have supplanted that just in terms of like well, other. I in- mean, unless any are higher in your top well, 10 of all time. I said that. I said that. It, it is my favorite David O. Russell movie. It's, it, it's actually, I guess what a, a better thing to say would be. I think it's David O. Russell's best movie yeah. by far on, on, on my list and by my, you know, by my, um by my measure. But yeah, overall really love this film. Don't know if you have any thoughts on it, Scott, but Silver Lines Playbook is fantastic. Oh, you know, I have thoughts on it, Scott. Uh, this was in my top yeah. 15 of the decade as well. I, I love this film. It, it is, you know, I'm, comedies are not my genre, as you know, but this is one that I really love and have returned to several times over the years. It has, you know, some really memorable lines and scenes, you know, there in the diner is a great scene. I love oh everything. God, such a good thing. Chris Tucker's character. <laughs> um, it's 
it's funny. And, and I think Bradley Cooper and uh, Jennifer Lawrence have great chemistry. And I love the, the clash of personalities between their two characters. It does take on some serious issues. At the same time, it's not really trying to be like a serious, like mental issue movie. And that's fine. Like, I think it works as, as the screwball romantic comedy that it is uh, setting out to be. Um, yeah. And yeah, it, it, it's great. Um, I, I like it a lot. Maybe it's not trying to be super serious, but I think that it, Maybe just because the reality of what the movie is, it's not it's not taking on the world and mental health issues. But yeah, I think it is picking making a pretty strong statement about how we view people with mental health and yeah. also what we can do to support them and and how we fail to support them oftentimes in ways as well. And I mean, it's maybe it's a, a movie that in some ways maybe came out too early because like, I don't know, like I feel like you could really does that plot better than Joker. That's what I'll say. <laughs> god um yeah well they'll just breeze past that just just know that on our top 10 films of all time it was you that brought up joker not <laughs> me <laughs> just know that um yeah no it's, i think so no i think that you talk about scenes like the diner i think that there's like it's really funny right like these two characters who both have their own uh battles with with mental health are like critiquing and, and judging each other for their own mental health or at least bradley cooper's character is certainly doing that to jennifer lawrence's character in these scenes and i think it's I think it's really interesting to see that. It's really interesting to see how their respective like family members and people who are close to them treat them and, and perceive them and things like that. And then how they have to ultimately, you know, grow together and, and develop, you know, a new support system in order to actually, you know, ach achieve the things they're trying to achieve and, and overcome or not overcome overcome is not the right word, but start to really fight against the the issues that they're that they're facing. And I think there's some like definitely some some I, I hesitate to say me too. Issues may be mildly addressed in this film, but I think that a lot of the things, uh, a lot of the things that you talk about, like the workplace harassment that Jennifer Lawrence's character mm -hmm. had faced previous to the, the movie, um, would be interesting if a movie like this came out now and, and a new discussion was had about the implications of that. Because I think that it, it might be more relevant now even than it was a decade ago. It's not that it's more relevant now, I guess, but it's, it's a more appropriate topic or more relevant topic for what's already happening in terms of the public discourse around things like this because obviously sure. i mean that's been an issue for decades and decades likely even long before this movie came out but yeah silver lines playbook i'd strongly recommend it what's your number 10 i do as well yeah uh scott my number 10 you know i talked about um uh, spotlight being you know this great sort of journalistic thriller that that's one of my like very very favorite like sort of narrow subgenres of movie are movies where people are like solving mysteries but not like uh through being action heroes or not like through being you know detectives like Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes, but where it's like dry procedural, like you are in a, you know, office, you are making phone calls, you are going through boxes of documents and you're solving, you know, you're solving some sort of mystery by doing that. Like that, that to me is one of the most uh, engrossing subgenres. And you have movies like Spotlight, you have all the president's men, you have Dark Waters from last year, even I think would qualify there. Um, and you have my number 10 film, Zodiac by David Fincher, which I think, um, yeah, you wrote it down there. Um, you knew where I was going. David Fincher yeah. is one of my favorite directors. He has um, a couple of movies that would be a couple of other films, you know, two or three films that would be in my top 50 to 100 of all time. Um, I, I think he's he's a brilliant director. And this is his best work for me. I think, you know, there there's room for disagreement there. People love the social network and seven. And those, those are amazing movies, too. But um, I think that uh, Scott, have you seen this film? 
Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, this is one of the best the mystery films, which is which is funny because the mystery isn't actually solved. They they do offer a um, conclusion about who the who they think the culprit is, but obviously the Zodiac killer case has never actually been solved. But uh, yeah, this is just so engrossing, like two hour fifty minute film. I love watching the the three main characters, like they're sort of their descent, and particularly Robert Graysmith, right, the Jake Gyllenhaal character, who starts out as this guy who just likes puzzles, right? He's he likes doing crossword puzzles, he likes solving puzzles, he's a cartoonist for the newspaper, and because he likes solving puzzles, he solves the cipher that the Zodiac Killer sends, and then he's immediately sucked in. And over, I mean, years pass in this movie, and you feel the years passing. I think that works really well, um, and. You know, he just becomes more and more obsessed. He loses his family, his Chloe Seventy, who plays his wife, that eventually becomes estranged from him. Um, it, it's it's you know crazy to watch his descent. But there is also like in the midst of this, you know, procedural thriller, there's also like these very visceral scenes, like that Fincher is known for, right? In in movies like Seven and uh, Fight Club, like he's known for the you know really visceral and scary scenes at time and the the way that the certain killings are recreated in this film is really really disturbing i mean because you know that these are like he's literally working from the actual zodiac files and like you know piecing together the these incidents and these actual murders that happen so you know that what you're watching is like how someone was actually killed and and that i think it is disturbing that really adds something to the movie there's an amazing sequence at the end suspenseful um where Gyllenhaal goes to the basement of this guy who like makes movie posters and it's it's one of the most suspenseful scenes you'll see in a movie so um yeah I mean Mark Ruffalo one of my favorites he's also shows up here Robert Downey Jr. does Robert Downey Jr. in this movie like uh, he, he does he does his usual thing as Paul Avery um it yeah. it's I mean his usual thing but this was before I mean this was before Iron yeah. Man right this was 2007, 2007 yeah yeah um but it, it's just it's just a great film. I, I don't know that I have anything more pr- profound to say about it than that. But like this, this is one of those movies. Again, another one that I think is oddly rewatchable, and you just get sucked in, no matter how much, uh, you know, no matter how many times you've seen it. And so, if you haven't checked out Zodiac, and you are into like true crime stuff, like this is the ultimate true crime film. Like you, you're not going to find one any better than this. Yeah, it's been a really long time since I have seen it, but I. I've seen it and I, I was probably honestly probably too young even when I saw it uh, for this type of film. But no, it's amazing. I think, I mean, I definitely didn't know who Robert Downey Jr. was at the time because I, I think I saw it pretty contemporaneously with it coming out, maybe maybe like a year or two after it, it came out. I'm pretty sure I saw it at the latest when I was in high school. But no, really good. I mean, David Fincher, like master of like the historical fiction, right? I mean, you got things like social, I mean, the social network and and this film really just shows mastering that craft, which is maybe one of the reasons why it's so exciting that Mank is coming out this year, because yeah. that's also some historical fiction for you. And I mean, he's shown over time that he's able to really do do his best work, maybe, or, I mean, arguably with, sure. with that sort of genre. And I think that it's maybe when he goes into these more creative endeavors and doing original original work like Gone Girl. and I mean, Seven's really, really good. And so is... Um, so is Fight Club, but uh, I think just more recently with, with something like Gone Girl, I've been like just less interested in that. And I know he's been working on Manhunter with Netflix, or at least producing it, if not directing it. So yeah, he, clearly this type of thing really interests him. And I think the quality of Zodiac really speaks to not only does it interest him, but he's really good at it. Yeah. And uh, I think yeah, Mark Mark Ruffalo in a true crime uh, movie, who would who would have thought? It's always got my heart. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, Scott, you're number nine. Yeah, my number nine. Like I said, no more no more comedies here. Although uh, I guess there's a couple funny moments in this film, and uh, maybe you'll agree. We'll see. But yeah, number nine for me is a film by one of my one of my favorite filmmakers. Although not my not my favorite necessarily, but 
uh, Alejandro uh, Gonzalez and Yari too here uh, directing Birdman in 2014. A great year in film. I think Scott, you and I can both agree that this was a banger of a year yeah, uh, yeah. for 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 movies and and Birdman for me uh, probably the strongest that year. I know it was like mildly controversial that, and I know that you disagree, Scott, because you just talked about your film from 2014 that you yeah. think is better. Um, but Birdman starring Michael Keaton, Emma Stone. Uh, I mean, those are the real two main characters, but there's a host of other people in here that have sort of cameos. I mean, the, the whole movie is on uh, both, I would say, Michael Keaton's back, but also the work that Inyaru 2 really puts into this film and the cinematography and, and the really... I think kind of j like jazz percussion score that you get with it as well. Speaking of uh, other percussion movies in 2014 that are really good whiplash, great film. Um, but yeah, br like this movie is just amazing. I remember the first time I saw it, I was just completely captivated by uh, completely captivated by what was going on here. And I mean, our listeners will know that I'm a sucker for a long shot, even though of course this is not a full, uh, like a full long shot. This is cut to make it look like it's t taken in mostly one shot. There's one cut in the movie. Uh, which is very intentional and, very and works and work and works works really well. Uh, and yeah, this whole film, I think you're just completely captivated by the talking about mental health. I guess there's a theme already in my top 10 list that the, the mental health problems that this individual who used to be <laughs> this superhero called Birdman, obviously a, a hilarious meta narrative, maybe on Michael Keaton's career, uh, but used to be the superhero who's now haunted by the specter of fame and what that means and, and success and what that means and whether he's, good or you know just popular and, and the differences between that and the struggle that he deals with that uh with like, basically just the internal struggle he deals with with that the, the relationship that he has with his daughter who's played by emma stone and then also his you know actual relationships he has in his professional career trying to put on this this play uh this play called birdman um that he's trying to get to you know basically just go i guess actually have opening night right it's, it's set a couple days basically takes place over a couple days before the opening night uh of that play and uh, it's a very dramatic film, Scott. I know that that it's not your favorite from 2014, as I've mentioned already, but I just find it really remarkable what Inyari 2 was able was able to do with Birdman, what Michael Keaton did in terms of his performance, and then the technical aspects of this film, I think, just really take my breath away. Yeah, I mean, make no mistake, it's, it's a really, really good film. And it's not better than Boyhood, but Scott, you and the Academy are entitled to your opinion, certainly. Um, <laughs> it, it, and it is one of the like, you know, five or 10 movies probably that I've seen in my life. In, in, like where after seeing it in the theaters, I walked out and I was like wide eyed, like hair standing on end. Like, what did I just watch? Like, I have never, truly never seen anything like the film that I just watched. Like, I, I can only think of a handful of other theatrical experiences that I have that are like that. And, and Birdman is definitely one that sticks out because of, you know, the whole style of the film and, Michael Keaton's performance and, you know, this whole weird meta narrative that's going on and him talking to this superhero fantastical character, whatever. I mean, it, again, you've, you've never seen anything like it. I don't think there ever has been a, a film uh, really like it. And so it, it scores a lot of points for originality. And so, um, you know, I, I can uh, argue some about what the best film from 2014 is, but you got one of the best films from 2014 for sure. It's, it's not like you picked a bad film. All right, uh, Scott, moving on to my number nine. Uh, and I went with my favorite documentary of all time. Um, and this is a film by Steve James from 1994. Uh, a trend here about maybe this is another one of my favorite film years, but uh, Hoop Dreams is an amazing film, Scott. Um, and this is one that I have known about for a long time because I used to watch Siskel and Ebert reviews back in the day, like when I was in high school, maybe even middle school. Um, and that was Nerd. kind of... 
one of my first tickets into yeah being a being a big movie fan and movie criticism fan and uh hoop dreams is a film that both of them but in particular roger ebert were champions of obviously this was a film about chicago set in chicago and they were chicago film critics but um this was one of roger ebert's favorite films of all time and uh so much so that he actually that steve james ended up directing life itself which is a documentary about roger ebert um and, and so i think because of the hoop dreams connection that was a, a huge reason why because ebert's review siskel and ebert's review was really big in getting hoop dreams into the public consciousness and getting people uh, aware of that. And so Steve James kind of did him a, a favor, but this is almost, this movie is almost the original boyhood, right? Except that it's actually real um, because they actually did follow these kids for four years. Uh, I mean, obviously Linklater did follow, but you know, the story is fictional, the, the people are fictional. Um, and, and they did follow, you know, the lives of these kids for four years. This is the other film I was talking about that I think is probably just one of the great films about America because it's about these two kids from inner city Chicago who their entire lives are dependent on, um, you know, whether they can find success in the game of basketball, Arthur Agee and William Gates are, are the two kids. Um, and as a sports fan, right? Like we, we get so into sports. Like there are times like when your favorite team is in the, like when, when the Indians were in the world series and they played in game seven or whatever, you feel like, like your whole life is riding on this game or whatever, which is obviously, you know, over dramatic. This movie is about how what if your your whole life actually was riding on whether you make the next shot or make the free throw or whatever. So you can imagine just watching this film uh, as a sports fan, even just as a human being, and knowing what is at stake, how suspenseful the game sequences are, right? Like if you think that like Miracle or uh, I don't know, Glory Road or some other, you know, sports biopic is, is suspenseful, think about watching this real life movie about these real life kids um, who, you know, again, their, their ticket out of the, the poverty and inner city lives that they are living um, is whether they can, you know, play well enough in high school basketball to go to a good college and then, you know, to go into the NBA possibly after that. And there's enough differences between the two kids that I think the film, you know, that both stories are equally engrossing. And so it's another long film that's, that's really engrossing. Um, but, I, you know, one, one other thing I have to, you know, name drop a little bit, but William Gates, who's one of the the guys in the movie, um, one of the kids that has followed, his son uh, went to Furman with me for uh, a year and a half, lived on my freshman hall, literally the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Um, like I, when I watch this movie, I have a new perspective on it. Cause like, it, it was always easy to root for, um, for Will Gates and for Arthur A.G. when you watch the movie, but it's even easier to root for them now knowing that, hey, look, Spoiler, they didn't necessarily achieve their dreams. There's a reason you may not have heard of their names, but look, they're kind of passing on the legacy, right? Because Will Gates Jr., the guy that I knew, he was playing basketball at Furman. And um, so so that was really cool to, you know, meet someone who is indirectly involved with, with one of my favorite films of all time. I never actually met William Gates Sr., but um, Will was a great guy. I'm sorry. I'm, we my friends and I were all really sad uh, when he decided to transfer during our sophomore year because he was just a super, super nice guy. He's always really nice to all of us. Um, but yeah, Hoop Dreams, amazing story about America. If you've never seen this documentary, like you're not going to, again, you're not going to see one better. Like this, this is uh, considered one of the greatest documentaries of all time for a reason. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, look, we talk about Academy controversy. I haven't seen this film, but I know about it. Uh, and you talk about Academy Awards controversy these days and public outcry around, I mean, just last year, right? Like, yes, Parasite won, but 
that also came with the fact that there was, you know, kind of an Oscars to, you know, Oscars so white moment again last year, obviously um, also with the, with a gender diversity problem with like something like little women, not getting nominated in the best director category. But like, this is, this feels like one of like the original, like Academy award, uh, like controversies. Like, I would have been hella mad at the time. Yeah. yeah. Like this didn't get nominated for best documentary feature in what 90, I guess 90, this was 94. Right. Right. So 94. like in the 1995 Academy awards did get nominated it even I don't know if this has ever happened since then, but didn't like the head of the academy or the executive director of the academy like, ask them to like show actually show the ballots like PwC to show the ballots for the and I saw that a, a bunch of a bunch of the people in the nominating uh, body for the documentaries. So who, I don't know who exactly votes for that, but like a bunch of them had only rated their top five movies uh, and you because you're supposed to rate every single movie. They only they only gave. Ten, they gave tens to their top five movies that they wanted to be nominated and zeros to everything else. And there's this like massive controversy ar- around this that probably, who knows, probably still happens Don't today. Get even. Don't get yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, this was like one of the original, this is like one of the original Academy controversies yeah. that, that, uh, that happened in back in 1995. But look, I, I don't know what actually ended up winning this year, but I guarantee you that Hoop Dreams has aged better than any of the films that are, <laughs> were nominated. And that is talked about way more than any of those other films. Yeah. yeah uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to yeah. to know either, but yeah. Yeah, but I don't, have you seen? You haven't seen Hoop Dreams, have you? No, I, I said that I hadn't seen it. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, check it out. No, I, I mean I want to. It's just like it's, it's amazing to me that the first two films in your top ten are movies that are like three hours plus long. I'm like, dude, you hate long movies. What are you talking? What are you doing here? You um, gotta earn it. That's as I've always said. And uh, by the way, Hoop Dreams is on HBO Max, so you can watch it right now. Ooh, that's tempting. Then, yeah, I was for the first time opening up HBO Max the other day and looking at the movie options and realized that it's the exact same as HBO, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't really know why I was scrolling through it because I'm familiar with HBO. But yeah, no, Hoop Dreams, I, I I might check it out. It seems like, I mean, obviously a really compelling story mm-hmm. like you were laying out there. All right, guys, here comes 2019 in force here with number eight. Uh, it was tough for like which 2019 movie is going to be the lowest uh, on my top <laughs> 10 list because look, guys, I've been I haven't been bashful about saying that 2019, I think, is the best year for movies in my lifetime um, for at least movies that I've enjoyed so much. And uh it, okay, it's so hard to pick which one was first, but I chose Parasite. Parasite is my number eight movie of all time. I don't like, look, you could go listen to like two or three different podcasts that we've done to hear all of my thoughts about how amazing Parasite was. And if you if you have listened to all those episodes, you'll know that I it wasn't, you know, one of my favorite movies the first time I watched it. It was great, certainly, but it wasn't it didn't feel like a masterpiece for me until the second time that I watched it. And I really just felt like everything clicked. Bong Joon-ho, what he is able to do with his characters, with his story, with his themes, with his satire. Something that, like, again, like, even the best directors sometimes can only dream of the satire I think he's able to capture of society. Certainly, certainly Todd Phillips wishes he had the power of, of Parasite. I remember my original Letterboxd review was, this is the film Todd Phillips wanted to make. Uh, he's bringing it up now. <laughs> you brought it up first. It's all fair game now that you brought oh, it. Just okay. wait till I bring up Vice. That's it's fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> Look, look, we bet that Vice wouldn't come up. It wouldn't be mentioned. And now it has been. So there you go. I won that one. Um, yeah, no, Parasite, guys, is it's an amazing film. I, I don't want to take a bunch of time talking about because we have talked about it so, so much. But it's a it's a really wonderful film. And one of the things that, you know, moving forward the next five or 10 years, they, the film is going to age fine. Like the film is going to be great. 10, 15, 20 years from now, I have full confidence in that. But one of the things that I'm really interested in is that is it is it a springboard for for foreign film in the U.S. market, like foreign, not just foreign film, but foreign language films uh, in the U.S. market. And will it be a springboard for some of these really talented South Korean actors and actresses to get more shots if they want it? Like if they're interested in doing 
you know, more American movies and, and to have a presence in them. Um, will they have those opportunities to, to do them? I mean, maybe they're not. I don't want to assume that they just want to go into American uh, cinema, American film and star in American movies. They may, they may not. I mean, obviously coronavirus is a huge inhibitor for that right now, but they're all just, I mean, they're everyone in this cast is extremely talented. And I don't think Bong Joon-ho could have made a better movie. I think, honestly, this is like one of those films that's like really close to, if not a perfect film. Yeah. Yeah. No, Scott. I mean, if I were to make a top 100, and actually, I think I am going to make a top 100 pretty soon, yeah. um, just for the lulls. Um, <laughs> I, Parasite would probably be in there. It'd be really close, if, if not in there. I mean, it's it's amazing. It was my number four of last year, I believe. Um, yeah. I, I, I love it. Um, and, and like Searching that you mentioned, this is another film that's really fun to show people, I think, because I think people have certain expectations about foreign films maybe going into them, like yeah. uh, that maybe they're not going to connect with them. Maybe they haven't even really seen any foreign films. Uh, but like when I showed this to my roommates, my friend Taylor, we were all just like, hooked even though i'd seen it before i, I love just watching their reactions and stuff um because- but i think that's what makes this movie so great is that yeah. like i mean for me even after i watched it the second time and and reevaluated you know how amazing the film actually was and and it got up to that next level it's like i still went I, I went and watched it a third time when i was re-watching all like all the best picture nominees and it still worked like everything still hit the same way the same power uh, even when you know what's coming and i think that's like that's the real mark of a of a, of a great movie yeah, and it's another one like Birdman too, where you just you've never seen anything like it. You don't know what's going to happen next. It's it's yeah. just incredibly original. So I always respect that. Yeah, really tense. Indeed. Uh, all right, Scott, my number eight. Uh, you had back-to-back Best Picture winners there, by the way, which is interesting. Uh, but anyway. Trust me, my next one won't be. <laughs> my number eight, Scott, is, you know, when you talk about your favorite films, I think one criteria is you know, meaningfulness, how, how much has a film meant to you in your own life? Because there are films, I think, that uh, at least, you know, if you're a big enough film fan like we are, that really can influence your life. And To Kill a Mockingbird is is one such film. And that is my number eight. Um, one of the best, you know, the book, obviously, was what I discovered first. We, we read it while in middle school. And, you know, I, I think what the film shows is that some stories are so good that, you just can't mess them up when you when you put them on film. And uh, Scott, I'm happy to see that in all the discussion recently that has gone on about sort of the depiction of race in in media and in movies. Um, you know, we had Gone with the Wind. You know, some controversy involving that. I, I'm glad to see that To Kill a Mockingbird has not come up because, like, on the surface, this is a film that you could look at. This is a story you could look at if you don't really know anything about it and say, "Hey, here, here we go. This is a white savior story about you know this lawyer." Uh, you know, defending a, a black man in, in rural Alabama, blah, 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 blah. But I think to, to do that would be to fundamentally misunderstand what To Kill a Mockingbird is about because it's not a white, it's, it is almost an anti-white savior story in a way, right? Because Atticus Finch doesn't save anything. Uh, Tom Robinson is convicted, even though everyone in the courtroom should know that, that he is guilty, right? Even though um, Atticus makes a perfectly convincing case like literally he can't even use his, use the hand that he is supposed to have used to, to hit Mayola Yule. Um, it's, it's, it's an open and shut case, but because of the racial prejudice, I just want to say, you said that everyone in the room should know he's guilty. I think you meant not guilty, not guilty. Yeah. Sorry. Um, uh, because of, you know, because of the racial deep, deeply ingrained racial prejudices, he's found guilty. And not only is he found guilty, but like he dies, right? Like he uh, trying to escape from the, the, the police officers while they're taking him to prison, he runs away and is killed by the police. Like, come on. Like th- this is, this is a movie for our time. I, I, because I think, you know, I, I say it's an anti-white savior. Cause I think it's like, 
saying, look, Atticus Finch, he did all he could, right? Like he had good intentions, but good intentions weren't enough, right? You have to come together as a community. One, one person, one good apple is not going to fix everything. You have to fundamentally change the, the mindset of the community, uh, right? And, and like, I think that's, that's, that is what uh, it feels like the moment, this moment is speaking towards in a way. And, you know, the central idea of, of To Kill a Mockingbird that you got to, you know, put on someone's shoes and, and uh, you know, put yourself in their position to, to understand um, who they are. Like that is what we are talking about right now as like, as white people like, right. How can we be allies? Because we're never going to understand what it's like to be, um, you know, a, a black person in America. We just have to, you know, exactly do exactly what Atticus Finch uh, is, is saying. We have to, you know, put on their shoes for a second. Imagine if we were, them. Imagine if we were waking up every morning and, and, you know, being afraid that, hey, I don't know if if I leave the house today, am I going to come back alive? Because that is, frankly, what what black people in America are having to deal with today. And so this movie, you know, again, it feels for a movie that's almost 50 years old, or I guess it is almost 60 years old. Um, it, it feels like it's more relevant now uh, more than ever. And it's a great coming of age film, too, about uh, Scout and Jim. Um, who who are Atticus's kids. And I mean, Gregory Peck, come on, the guy, like when I think about this performance, it's, it's incredible to me because there is no one who, you know, that has ever existed who could have done this role better than Gregory Peck. And so, to think about that, you had this, this role, like to think about casting this role and not only was it, was there like this cosmic explosion that happened such that the, the perfect actor for this role was alive at the time when they were making the movie, but also he happened to be an A-list star, right? Like Gregory Peck was a movie star at the time that To Kill a Mockingbird came out. So like, it was just like, again, this one in a million like cosmic explosion that came together so that they were able to find the, literally the perfect actor for Atticus Finch. And the result is one of the great performances in film history. And the closing argument scene is one of the great scenes in film history. So uh, I think To Kill a Mockingbird it is amazing and it is fresher than ever. And, it's a movie, obviously, that has impacted my life a ton and my decision to go to law school and uh, the type of law I want to pursue. Like, uh, you know, I, I it, it continues to impact me to this very day. And to tie it to other films that have already been on both of our lists, I think this is Robert Duvall's like film debut. debut. I think it was the yeah, first exactly. movie he was in. You are correct. Yeah, I, I haven't seen this one, but I've oh, read the you book. Haven't seen it? Wow. Okay. I mean, I've read the book multiple times. I mean, may maybe the movie can add something to the to the literature. I'm look like we're all we're all skating on thin ice because I feel like Harper Lee every other year is like close to getting canceled for whatever like the the sequel that wasn't written by her or was written well, by her. And look, we don't need to get into that whole thing, but yeah, if you look at the facts on that situation, it's very clear that that was never meant to be published. Like that that yeah. was probably an early draft to kill a mockingbird, even that that ended up being uh, changed, and that in her old age and maybe losing her marbles a little bit, she, you know, publishers, her family, I don't know, people took trying to make money off of, of it, her, yeah. right, to make money of her. It's a tale as old as time. And so I don't put much stock in, in ghosts at a watchman and the fallout from that and what they do with the Atticus character there. Cause I don't think that was ever meant to see the light of day. Probably right about that. But no, I, I have a look, I'm sure every, every movie that's going to, that you're about to talk about that I haven't seen are, are movies that I should have seen. <laughs> uh, but at least with this one, I've, I've read the book. I know yeah, the source material and I mean, look like go read it. If you don't, if you don't walk away from reading that book and having maybe a better sense or a better understanding of even the present moment, even though it was written, what, like when was it originally written? Like 70, 80 years ago? When was it? I don't remember when. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the thirties or forties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
then you're missing the point probably. But that's okay. Indeed. All right, you're number seven, Scott. Yeah, my number seven. Look, 2019 is is taking up a spot here, but don't worry. After a few more a few more entries here, and we'll we'll have 2019 behind us. Uh, but this one again had to debate it. Had to debate which one was going to come next. And this one's Avengers Endgame. Look, I, I look in, in, in some universe, I'd say this is my favorite comic movie of all time. But uh, looking at my list, and there's another one on here a little later on. Uh, but look, Avengers Endgame is one of those things where, yes, I think our listeners will know that I'm a big fan of comic book movies and you know in terms of relative of the two of us a bigger fan of comic movies than you are but the truth is is that i didn't come to avengers movies until fairly late like i wasn't really in it wasn't really until like 2014 2015 that i really caught up on the mcu started being interested in them engaged in in comic book movies overall and and kind of watching them contemporaneous with their release and even even with that sort of delay i think that a lot of these movies really grew on me. I mean, some, some of them, if I made a longer list, might make it like Spider-Man Homecoming, I think is amazing, an amazing entry. I think the first Guardians of the Galaxy like just gets the perfect mix of humor and drama. And as much as I'm skeptical of some of the stuff Chris Pratt does outside the MCU and maybe the Lego movie as well, uh, outside of those two things, like I think he's really great uh, in the MCU. And one of the... We talk about the MCU all the time. Like one of the things that just... The, every movie seems fresh. It seems like a little bit different. Nothing feels exactly the same as something else uh, in the cinematic universe that they've created. And somehow after, at the time, 21 movies going on their 22nd film, they managed to create something that perfectly tied together together every movie before it, really feeling like it put a proper bow on, I don't even know what you like, the first, it's not the first phase, right? But the first saga uh, of the MC, of course, Spider-Man: Far From Home came out after it, and it's technically the end of that saga of Phase Three. Of Phase Three, but this really felt like the, you know, the true climax or Danny Ma, kind of the whole package, right? Of of everything here, and you know, I, it's hard to list performers that did well in this film because look, everyone's here, like <laughs> everyone is in this film, and all the characters that needed to hit the right notes and even the characters that maybe I was less interested in or hadn't necessarily resonated as much with me before Avengers Endgame and especially before Avengers Infinity War. I think they all have their moment to shine and they're all amazing. And the emotional roller coaster that you go through from the start of the film that picks up right at the end of Infinity War to, well, I guess, yeah, I guess it would be right at the end of Infinity War because it's Hawkeye uh, at its snap. And then all the way to the end uh, when you have the funeral for, for Iron Man and, you know, Cap, gets to basically have his sort of moment to finally, you know, hang up the shield or pass the shield on to the next person and go live the life that he'd earned. Right. I, I think that all those moments just feel right. And look, we, we've compared these two movies enough to show the strength of one and the weakness of the other. But to think that there are two franchises that got wrapped up last year, one being uh, the first, you know, the infinity saga of the MCU and the Skywalker saga and star Wars. And to think that, to compare those two movies is a, is a joke because Rise of Skywalker is a joke of a film and Infinity or sorry Endgame is just I mean absolutely incredible. So we've now uh, brought up Joker, Vice and Rise of Skywalker. Let's just not air this episode. I'm too triggered <laughs> already. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh the, it's just it's just a, a, amazing, right? And it honestly part of me feels like it should just be higher on this list. And if I, if I was making a list of of films that were like my top 10 cinematic, like in theater experiences. I mean, this would just be hands down. Number one, like there's just nothing will, I really just strongly believe nothing will ever surpass. Um, especially the first time 
I saw this film in theaters and I'd argue that nothing would surpass the second or even the third time I saw it in theaters as well. Like that, like those three viewings on the first weekend were probably my top three theater experiences of all time, just for how electric the crowd is. And like, if there's no other reason, like that is the reason why we need theaters to survive for, for movies like Avengers Endgame. Uh, you can argue whether or not they're real cinema or whether they're exploring real emotional depths. I disagree with you, but uh, what you are getting out of movies like this is you're getting a real theatrical experience. It's not the only movie that deserves to be on the big screen by any stretch of the imagination, but the communal experience of going to see a movie, you're not going to find a better movie to go see in that environment, maybe besides Cats, that, uh, it, than Avengers, Avengers Endgame. Because what you're getting there is, is just really remarkable, especially if you're you know, as invested as I think every person in the theater was uh, that first night and second, third times I saw it as well. Yeah, I mean, and, and what you're saying there, Scott, is a reason, like, again, if I were to make my top 100, I mean, this was like my nine or 10 of last year, but it yeah. might make the list just because of the experience, right? I'm, I mean, yeah. I'm with you. I don't think I've had a better theatrical experience ever watching a movie. Um, and I'm not even like any, any like comparatively an MCU fan, uh, you know, compared to you, like I, I'm nothing. Um, I, I really enjoy the movies. I've seen almost all of them. Um, and I was, you know, really affected and touched by Avengers Endgame. Um, Cause but, it has, it has style. It has substance. It has yeah. visual effects. It has performance. Like it just has it, it all. It is a great film, right? Yeah. It, it is cinema. Um, and yeah, I, I've talked before about how impressed I am with what the Russo brothers do here. And yeah, I've been wanting to watch this again. I've seen it three times and I think I'll probably watch it for a fourth pretty soon. And again, another long movie that yeah. I think is so entertaining that it, it doesn't, you don't feel the length. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a film that earns certainly earns its length and, it's yeah it's it, i don't know what more is there to say I, I go back and i haven't watched the film actually since it left theaters i mean i watched it four times in theaters and i haven't watched it since then but i keep getting close to coming back and usually anytime i get really close to coming back i'll just go watch the clips that the russo brothers like tweeted or, or released of an the opening theater, night showing yeah. of it and like yo chill like chills every single time i even start like crying a little bit mm -hmm. uh during the portal scene just because like like they like they did it like will anyone ever ever conclude a saga like that ever again because you know they disney had another crack at it later that year and they they didn't nail it no they did not uh and and the less said about that the better but um okay scott i think we can go to my number seven now and this is yeah. the movie that i have watched the most recently and have actually watched only one time so you may think why yeah. why is this movie on my list how can you put a movie in there after only one viewing but scott like like you said about searching, right? There are some movies where you just know, and I don't, I've never watched a more powerful movie than, than Schindler's list, which is my number seven. And, you know, if we were doing an objective greatest movies of all time last, I mean, obviously I'm doing the AFI watching all the AFIs right now. And when I get to the end of that, I think I'll have a better idea of like, what is the greatest film of all time that I've ever seen objectively right now? I think this might be it, Scott. Again, again, I, I need to rewatch it to, to confirm that. And it's not an easy movie to rewatch. Um, not just because of the length, but obviously because of the subject matter. But it's like another over three hour movie. Yeah, I'm not sure I've seen a, a more perfect film than than Steven, what Steven Spielberg does here. And I'm still processing a lot about it. But I think one of the things which just surprises me so much is that this is a completely unflinching look at the Holocaust, right? Like this and from Steven Spielberg, right? That's the surprising part about it. Because Spielberg is like the, he makes the movies for everybody, right? He made Jurassic Park, E.T. Family uh, Indiana, movies. Indiana yeah. Jones, right? Like movies you can take your whole family to, just crowd pleasers. 
And this movie is, I mean, this is as violent and disturbing a depiction of the Holocaust as you will see. And, you know, a main reason for that, right, is because Spielberg is Jewish. So this is personal to him. This is a, a personal story to him. And I think that is, you know, written on every single frame of Schindler's List. And that, that is why Schindler's List is, is what it is. This is not, you know, a detached observer trying to tell this story. This is someone who, you know, I, I don't totally know about his family background, but maybe he had family members who, who were in the Holocaust or, um, you know, were, were involved with the war in some way. And, and, you know, at the very least, experienced persecution in the way that many Jewish people did in, in the time. And um, the, just the, the powerful experience, not only of of watching these events happen and, and realize, you know, that this actually happened, right? Like, how could, how could these things have actually happened? How could we have allowed these things to happen? How could this just pure unmitigated evil have ever occurred, um, but also the like the human story that is at the heart of this, and and the change that we see undergoing in Oscar Schindler as this guy who you know is just a businessman. He's trying to make money at the start of the film. He doesn't. He's not involved in the lives of these Jewish people. But through this sort of um, journey and his relationship with Itzhak Stern, who is his Jewish accountant that uh, helps him out, played by Ben Kingsley, he starts. You know, he makes it his his mission to. I'm going to save as many Jewish people as I can by, you know, turning them into essential workers here, basically in my factory so that they get a pass so that they're not sent to the concentration camps, even though most of them aren't really doing anything. They don't even know how to do the type of work that is in the factory. He's just, you know, basically doing them a solid um, and, and, you know, giving them all That's jobs. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> doing them all jobs. That's probably trivializing it, but uh, do, giving, giving them all you know, quote unquote jobs so that they can survive. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's an amazingly emotional story. Like the, the end, you know, when I talk about this being one of the most powerful films I've ever seen, like I've never cried. Like I have at the end of this movie, like the, just the powerful, how, how powerful the end of this movie is where you see, uh, you know, where, where the, you know, that he's freed however many number of people, so, you know, starting with the sequence where he is, you know, lamenting, right? We could have saved more. We could have saved more than like, that is still his attitude after the number of people that he saved. Then seeing all of them get off the train and go up over the hill, right? The characters. And as they come up over the hill, I almost like start breaking down just as talking about as they come up over the hill, it changes and you see all of the real people, right? The real people that Oscar Schindler saved and their family members, and they're coming up over the hill, they're leaving something on his grave. And I mean, it's just, there. there's nothing like it. There's, there's no, uh, I think collective experience in terms of depicting a historical event on screen that has ever had the power that that Schindler's List has. It, it is, I think, it is exactly what film was meant to do. Right? It is. Um, it, it makes us empathize with a group of people that I don't think any other medium could have captured, could have made us empathize with with Jewish people um, so deeply as we do. And, and with Oscar Schindler as well, and watching this movie, I think only film could have done that, or only Steven Spielberg probably could have made this film. And it's one of the all-time greats, if not the all-time great. Yeah. Aren't you curious who the three people are on Rotten Tomatoes who didn't give it a positive review? I guess. <laughs> well, I'll let you go look at that separately. Name, I mean, name names. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to open it up and look. But yeah, I will say that you didn't mention Ray Fiennes in this, but a great prequel to Harry Potter where he plays an other, another evil person. <laughs> yeah, Voldemort. But, but, you know, Voldemort is evil, but again, nothing compared to, to his character in this movie, literally sitting in the upstairs of his bedroom and just sniping Jewish people just for sport. Like, 
you know, one of the most evil characters ever depicted yeah. on film. And, you know, credit to Ray well, Fives. Not, for... not just depicted, but like as a real person. Like that's the, yeah, I think yeah. that's the crazy part. That's the difference between him and Voldemort probably. I mean, Voldemort yeah. looked like, I mean, his goal was, was mass genocide of, of non-magical people. So mm -hmm. I, I would actually maybe deem to compare yeah, them yeah. a little bit, but, but like one of them is real. Like one of them really happened. One of them is not fantasy. Right. Um, and that I haven't seen, this is another film that I haven't seen for plethora of, of different reasons. Cause yeah, it's, look. Intimidating, I mean, I, to say the I, least. I, I, you know, was against seeing it for a while just because I just thought it would be such a tough watch, and I watched it because of the AFI challenge that I was doing, right? And like, yeah, it's it's not an easy watch. Like, there's no denying that. But like, if you give it a chance, if you you know put in the the time and effort that is due to watch this film, you will have one of the great greatest experiences you've ever had watching a film. I guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what 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 else more is there to say? It's a uh extremely culturally relevant film, especially on a day like today where I got an update from New York times today saying that there are neo-Nazis infiltrating the German government currently. And I was like, Oh, cool. Appropriate. Yeah, great. Um, let's, let's move on to something happier. Hopefully number six. Yeah. Number six. Well, I don't know how much happier we're actually oh, going to get here. Uh, number, number six, the final movie from 2019 on my list, Scott, you'll know what it is uh, just by saying it's the final one on the list. And it's a, it's a war movie. The other world war, uh, world war one, 1917, Sam Mendes is magnum opus. Probably. I mean, look, maybe he'll do something greater in the future. Who knows? But this film is, you know, maybe a, maybe a, a constant here a hook that really drags me in that maybe people can identify as, you know, the, the cinematography of a film and, and this film says, oh, Birdman, I see what you're doing. Hold my beer. Uh, I'll do it. I'll do it bigger and I'll do it better. And they did it bigger and they did it better. There are, I don't think there are any cuts in this film, right? It's, it's, well, I mean, there are, obviously, yeah, there, there are cuts stairs, yeah. when he falls into what, sorry, when he falls down the stairs, like, yeah, there, the yeah, there is one cut technically, although does it even technically, I think you could argue that it doesn't, it doesn't cut. It just time passes Yeah, uh, yeah. and it becomes night. Um, but yes, the point taken, point taken. But yeah, no, this film is remarkable. I think it was one of those films where, you know, I didn't, we didn't get to see this until this year, right? Technically, we didn't see it until the second week in January because we're not in any markets that were showing it uh, in 2019 proper. And I obviously had been seeing all the hype about what people were saying. I'm just like, I'm like, I don't know. Am I really going to love this film? I mean, I get, I get the hook of it, right? Like it looks really cool. looks really great. But this just feels like, you know, an Oscar Beatty derivative war movie that's doing something cool with its cinematography. Deacons will definitely win another Oscar and that'll be that, right? Like that's, that'll be what it is. Like the performances here, like, yeah, they're they're The cast is deep in terms of like cameos and quality of the cast, but who are these two people, you know, in the lead roles? Like, uh, have they even done anything interesting before? And the answer to all that was like, yeah, that's fair. Have they done anything? before of substance but george mckay and dean charles chapman both them and particularly george mckay here are spectacular uh as these two uh was it private first classes or whatever whatever their rank is i can't remember um in the british army in world war one who are given a mission to basically seek out the front line as quickly as possible because they're going into a trap and they're all going to be murdered and it's a simple mission that only one of them really is invested in from the start and then you have this emotional journey of one like the actual cost and, and toll it takes on them to actually make it to the front line but two the emotional journey of the one who is maybe less invested in in this mission becoming more invested in it and becoming and feeling like they have a responsibility 
to finish the mission. And I just think that it's a remarkable piece of filmmaking about a war that often in cinema doesn't end up getting talked about that much. I mean, yeah, there's all quiet on the Western front um, and, and whatnot for World War One films, but there's really not that many World War One films that really depict the how gruesome trench warfare uh, really is. And I think this film is unflinching in its portrayal and, and so it had some surprisingly emotional moments for a film I thought was going to be very uh, surgical and very clinical and how it goes about doing its its business and not being particularly emotional. And in fact, I found it, I found it to be one of the most emotional films uh, of last year in some ways. And uh, everything about this film, again, is, uh, is almost perfect for me. Yeah, I mean, emotional, I think, is the the right word. I, th- I think the word that takes this movie to a whole nother level, right? Because I think yeah. I had the same reaction as you about is this just going to be a technical stunt? And look, there are plenty of people out there who will tell you that's exactly what it was, right? That it was just a technical stunt. Like, and I just don't understand that. Like, I've seen the movie three times now. Look, I respect your opinion again. Um, like, I, I respect your opinion that Birdman is better than Boyhood, even though it's not. Um, I, I think that... Uh, I've, you know, each time that I've watched the film, I've tried to look for what these people are talking about and I can't help but get sucked in by the story. I think there's, it's a small story, right? Like it's, the story is probably small in scale compared to, you know, that there's this grand war going on, the grand technical achievements that you're seeing, but that almost makes it work even better. I think because there's something intimate yeah, exactly. All of this grandeur, um, I think, you know, is, is what makes it so powerful and yeah, just, uh, the journey that you go on with George Mackay's character as he goes on a physical and emotional journey. Um, that is, I think, the takeaway from the movie as much as, you know, the the technical achievements of the film are, you know, too. I, I, I was blown away by this movie. It was my number three of, of 2019. And yeah, I can't fault you for picking this. It's, it's one of the best war movies I've ever seen. Yeah, it, and it, again, a movie you've seen it three times, right? It's yep. weirdly rewatchable. It is a weirdly rewatchable film for how harrowing the experience is when you're when you're watching it. And one thing that I haven't mentioned yet that it would be remiss to not mention is just like how freaking good the score is in this film. And I and I really do think it's criminal that it didn't win. It didn't win for best score. I, I look, I I can't believe I'm about to mention Joker again, but I will say that I thought the score was was very I'll good. Mention the other movie that should have won best score, but sure, Alexander Desplat could have won two years yeah. or three years in a row or whatever it was going to be for for best score. But like, um, but no, like this this film is just like from the from the first time the score kicks in right after they get the mission and they and they walk back out of the sort of the foxhole that they're that they're in when they're getting the mission and that music kicks in. You're like, oh boy, here we go. Um, and it's it's awesome, guys. It's just absolutely amazing. Everything technical about this film. Like, look, this film is a technical stunt, but it, it is that. But it has so much more yeah. with it as it's well. Not and just that. Yeah. It's not just that. Exactly. Yeah. And it's it's incredible. And look, three films of 2019 in my list. You can see that maybe that maybe there's some recency bias there. Maybe it's just weird that most most recent year of film was just one that really resonated so deeply with me. But it's one of those films that I think that it more than surpassed my expectations. I've seen it four times now and I'd see it some more. Yeah. It it was a great year for film Scott and it will not surprise our listeners to know that there's still one film from 2019 that I am going to talk about a little. Yeah. Anyone who follows you on letterbox would know how freaking psycho you are. Anybody who's ever listened to this podcast since December, 2019, I think we'll know, but um, some say psycho, some just say passionate. Um, yeah, that's a better word for it. What's the What's the line from Social Network? Like, there's a, there's a uh, there's a difference between being obsessed and being passionate, or something like that. Um, I don't remember what the line is. But, yeah, go um, for it. Quote Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> 
yeah, probably not the best thing. But let's move on to number six for me, Scott. Um, and my number six, if you know our listeners can't see right now, but I have a couple of movie posters behind me. Um, and one of the movies that oh, what I is that Vice behind me? <laughs> yeah, you can see Dick Cheney right there. Um, is my number six film. And, you know, as much as some of these movies, like maybe I came to them a little bit later or they've gone in and out of my top 10, um, you know, some of the movies that I've talked about so far, this is not one of them. This is a movie that has been in my top 10 of all time, even, you know, mostly my top five of all time since the very first time I watched it. Uh, and that is Brian De Palma's crime epic from 1987, The Untouchables. Um, yeah, I was surprised this didn't end up higher on your list. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just, you know, I moved a few things around in, yeah. in making this, but uh, I, I can't foresee a world. I mean, maybe, maybe you know, 20, 30 years from now, this will fall out of my top 10 finally. But this is just one of the, oh, look, I've said, I've tried to say profound things about why I like some of the other films. There's probably not that much profound to say about The Untouchables. The only thing you could say about this movie is that it is one of the, you know, most supremely entertaining things you'll ever watch. Like that is what the movie sets out to do. It doesn't try to be anything more than a great entertainment. And, you know, it accomplishes that dead on bullseye, hundred um, percent. And like, look, that is what film is for as much as, you know, it is what I talked about with Schindler's List and making you empathize with these people. Like it is there to entertain as well. And as, as pure entertainment, you're not going to do anything better than the untouchables. This is the film about Elliot Ness and look, look, it's a historical story, but it takes a lot of liberties from what I understand with, with the real story. But Elliot Ness, played by Kevin Costner, who is this sort of idealistic uh, officer with the, the IRS, um, who um, becomes, uh, you know, a crusader for prohibition against prohibition. Right. He, he is brought in um, to sort of um, to, to bring down, uh, you know, illegal alcohol rings um, and the way that he does that is by bringing in this sort of ragtag band of, of uh, untouchables, right? That, that is what they're called. Um, and, you know, you have Andy Garcia as the, the cop in, in training, uh, George Stone. You have Charles Martin Smith as the Nebuchadnezzar accountant um, who, who uh, you know, doesn't look like he's going to be a physical presence. But in, you know, one of the big shootouts in the movie um, takes a shotgun and just blows a bunch of guys away. And it's it's comedic and great. Um, and then Sean Connery and his Oscar winning performance as this, you know, sort of veteran beat cop, Jim Malone, uh, supposed to be Irish, I think, but he's just doing, uh, Sean Connery, which is obviously very, very Scottish. Um, but he does it, you know, incredibly well. I, I can't fault anyone for giving him the Oscar here, uh, in recognition, not just of the performance, but of his career of great work. Um, and yeah, this, this movie has some of the best set pieces ever. Like I think maybe my favorite set piece is probably the train station, scene from this, which does does borrow from Battleship Potemkin, which like you'd be forgiven for not knowing that because Battleship Potemkin came out in like the 20s or something. But um, the Odessa step sequence from Battleship Potemkin is what it borrows from. But that doesn't make it any less amazing that the sustained suspense, like, you know, there are seven, eight minutes that pass in the sequence of kind of just mundane things going on, right? This woman with the baby carriage is the famous yeah. image. Yeah the you know it was spoofed in naked gun 33 and a third like it, it it's that iconic you're just kind of watching what's going on in this train station and suspense is building and then the action breaks out um it's it's amazing um and you know there's some emotional moments in this movie characters die and and you know some of the most powerful <coughs> death scenes that you'll see in the movies um I love this film. It's my favorite crime film of all time. Um, and I think Brian De Palma doesn't get enough credit for being one of the great crime directors, because if you look at 
Scarface, you look at The Untouchables, and you look at Carlito's Way. Those are three five-star crime movies, like top 10 crime movies of all time, at least for me. Um, and yeah, I, I will never not love The Untouchables. It is it is as good as genre films get. You're not counting the other the <laughs> other films poster on the wall behind you as a crime movie? No, I'm not. Yeah, legal a crime is involved, but I don't think it would be classified as that. Yeah, fair enough. I, you know, The Untouchables, I've seen it. It is very good. I don't know if I have much more to add other than there are some very iconic scenes in that one. Um, I don't know. I think The Godfather is better, but it's a high bar. <laughs> it might be, again, it might be better, but I enjoy. Oh, sure. More. And, and, I, I, and I wouldn't begrudge you that. Like, film, yeah. I was going to say, I think The Untouchables is trying to be more fun than The Godfather. I don't think The Godfather is yeah. trying to be a fun movie. Yeah. This is, a, I mean, this is like a crusading buddy cop movie. It really is at its heart. Yeah, it's like some like non-Western hit, like what, like sig- like what, what is it? The Seven? I can't remember that. Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven. Yeah, no, I that's, like that's like kind of like what this that's is. A good comparison point, I think. Yeah. 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 All right, we're in the top five, Scott. Number right. five. Is this the first? I think this is the first Christopher Nolan movie on my list. Wow. Yeah. Took so long to get here. Uh, Inception in Christopher Nolan's like first attempt at a sci-fi film. Uh, we were just recording our interstellar podcast the other day, which I'd said was going to come out after this, but, uh, it'll come out before this is released. But yeah, I, I think that inception is one of those films that it has like the ingenuity of just like the ingenuity of a filmmaker who is just wholly, I, I guess, like out there in terms of his creativity and like what you expect from, from a filmmaker and just like, Thank God that like wa- someone trusts Christopher Nolan enough to pay him, like to pay- to give him the money he needs to make a film like Inception, because look like not everyone's gonna enjoy it as much as I do, obviously. But what is true about this is that like, and I don't know, I'm sure people who are contrarian out there will disagree. It's just like thank God like a movie like like uh, movies like this get made, right? Because it's just like so creative. It's so spectacular in its ambition, uh, right? Like this whole idea of like, we're going to go on, we're going to set like an action spy-ish movie uh, inside people's heads. Like we're, we're going to do dream, we're going to go into people's dreams and steal things from them. Like we're going to have a heist movie uh, in someone's in someone's dreams. And then those people are going to have dreams in their dreams. And we're going to go in down into that and down into that. And it, it just kind of layers on further down and down. And like, it's such, an, it's such a wild idea mm-hmm. uh, from the not, from the mind of, I guess both Nolans, right? Nolan, Christopher and Jonathan, Jonathan Nolan there. And the way that Chris Nolan is able to realize, it seems like all of his, all of the ambitions that he has, like not only is he able to dream them up, he's also able to like get them onto the screen in a really effective way. And there's just so few filmmakers out there who can do both, right? Like there's plenty of people who can dream up the ideas. There's plenty of people who can implement the ideas and very few can do, can do it both, can do it both ways. And Christopher Nolan is one of, one of those really special filmmakers. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't know. Has he been in any of the movies that I've talked about so far? Another first on the list. It won't be the last time he pops up on the list either um, here. But Leonardo DiCaprio, I think this is one of his low key, one of his best performances. I think that one of the, I mean, this is the film that really made like catapulted him into my favorite actor list. Like there's another movie again that has Leonardo DiCaprio in it that I like more than this film. And that arguably is a better performance from him as well. But this is the film that really pushed me to the bars. Like as a, someone who I want to follow and like when they are in a film, I will go and see it. Like this is the film that did it for me. Cause I think, you know, one of the things that is just so awesome is that Leonardo DiCaprio can like really do it all right. Like a year or two after this, he's playing 
um he's playing wolf like he's in wolf of wall street as like this like big time um stockbroker who's like you know cheating everyone and making millions he and millions Django and chained in there even before that too Oh right, yeah, and then yeah, he's the villain in Django Unchained, or I guess one of several people who are villainous in that film. Uh, but you know, there's that. There's I mean, Catch Me If You Can. There's The Revenant, which didn't come up on this list, but also another great film by Yari too, with DiCaprio and with some phenomenal cinematography that finally won him the Oscar for Best Actor. Uh, it, look, like the guy can just do it all. And I think one of the really unique things about Inception is that this feels like the film you don't expect Leonardo DiCaprio to make. Like, I don't think you expect Leonardo DiCaprio at whatever age he was at to go out there and make an action spy movie like Inception with a sci-fi twist and do it with like the like the expected talent you'd expect someone like Leonardo DiCaprio to, to make. I mean, this isn't early in his career at this point, and he's doing... I mean, I don't know if he's doing his own stunts. That's a completely separate argument, but he's out there making a movie like this, um, and, and it really feels like he and Christopher Nolan are like a really good pairing. I, I really like the idea of them being paired together uh, because you have the creativity of Nolan and and what DiCaprio is able to bring to the table. And so I'm really glad that they did get the chance to, to work together because I think DiCaprio has the people nowadays that he likes to work with, and those are probably the people he's just going to be working with, right? So we'll see. Uh, Scorsese being <laughs> being the guy that he likes to work with, I think, with Killers of the Flower Moon uh, coming up is probably the thing he's going to do. Like, he's had his time with Tarantino. He had his time with Nolan. He had his time um, with a couple other with a couple other filmmakers in there and Yari too, et cetera. Like he wants to, I think he wants to work with everyone, but now he's going to go back and, and do his own thing. But I'm glad this got made. I think that the story is incredibly interesting. I think the ending uh, that Christopher Nolan dreams up and is able to leave the, the viewer with, as we talked about in great detail on the inception podcast uh, that we did in our, in our Nolan countdown is remarkable. And every time I rewatch the film, which is this point has been a considerable number of times, I think my perception and my um, love for the ending and what it's doing grows even more. And I think that if you're able to create a film that builds up to an ending that leaves you with a lot of thoughts and allows you to develop those thoughts, I don't necessarily feel like you were wrong before, but develop those thoughts further every single time you watch it, even four or five, six times later, is, again, just some really special storytelling and filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, look, Inception is not one of my, among my favorite Nolan films. Um, you know, I, I think I am still left maybe a little cold at the end, um, but I think it's a, an amazing movie and I, I really, really enjoy it. And I agree with your sentiment that like my, my main takeaway when I watch the movie is just like, I just can't believe this movie exists. And and thank yeah. God it does, right? Because, yeah. you know, again, Nolan is waving the flag for original blockbusters right now. Um, and this movie, you know, again, straight out of some acid trip, uh, it seems like, you know, there, there's no other blockbuster movies that are, you know, involving this sort of creativity. Um, and yet he can consistently do it and he can get the big bucks to do it and he gets the returns, right? Like he, he gets the return on his investment. Um, and, yeah, I, I think he's one of the most essential filmmakers that we have right now. And even when, you know, he, he isn't as successful, which isn't that often, to be quite honest, um, I, I'm I'm glad he's around and making movies and I'm glad that Inception exists. Yeah. I mean, his least successful movies are just the movies that he made before he was known. I mean, that's yeah. like, ever since he became famous, like ever, I mean, definitely since The Dark Knight or Batman and maybe even Batman Begins, but especially since The Dark Knight. I mean, yeah. the, the guy's bordering on 500 million to a billion dollars. Every single time he makes a movie. I don't know exactly what Dunkirk made. Maybe it was in the 300s. But, I mean, Interstellar made $600, $700 million. I mean, the guy is just... He's money. I mean, that's the reason why Warner Brothers will give him $200 million to make a movie. Is because he'll, he guarantees $200 million at least in return. Totally. Uh, if, if not more, which is remarkable. I mean, I talked mostly about Leonardo DiCaprio. But I think 
almost all the supporting cast here is pretty incredible too uh from tom hardy before before the dark knight rises and before a couple other very notable tom hardy performances i think he's really really funny and this i think joseph gordon levitt although maybe not maybe not given the best character in the film to work with i still think makes the most out of what he's given and and some of particularly the hotel fight scene with the walls spinning um is an is a very memorable action sequence in the film and i and i think the the list goes on down further i mean i think ken watanabe is really really good in this film and i could keep talking i mean i know ellen page is maybe uh not a weak performance but a weak character that you could maybe point to but uh overall i think the film more than makes up for its flaws in, in all of the ingenuity and what it gets right yeah um I think that's all there is to be said. Um, okay, let's move on to my number five then. Um, and my number five is almost famous, Scott. This uh, is Cameron Crowe's uh, autobiographical film about uh, a young man, a teenager, who loves rock music and gets a job freelancing for Rolling Stone covering a fictional band called Stillwater. Um, this is just a movie that checks so many boxes for me, right? Like you got the coming of age element in there. You have the music element in there. Like th those are some of the, you know, some of my favorite uh, types of movies. And so when they blend them together, Sing Street is another example of like a music based coming of age movie. And obviously I love that one too. Um, you know, it, it, it was a match made in heaven for me. And I think a lot of people have the same reaction, right? Like it's one of those films where like, there are, there are times when I feel like this movie was specifically made for me, right? Like when, when, when Anita, who's, who's uh, William's sister played by Zoe Deschanel, when she leaves home and she tells the mom, she tells Frances McDormand, Hey, uh, here's a song about why I'm leaving. You'll understand. Uh, you'll understand later and um, plays my favorite song of all time, right? America by Simon and Garfunkel. Like that, I, I sit there and I'm like, this movie is for me. Um, but there are plenty of people who think that, right? Like, because this is such a, a, a very much loved movie. And again, going back to Roger Ebert, like this is a movie that I was kind of turned on to by him because he he loved it so much and talked about, you know, to use the phrase that you brought up earlier, this is literally the phrase he used in, in his review about he felt like he was hugging himself while watching it because it was just that type of movie. Um, and yeah, like it, this, the story, the story is great. It's, it's very funny. Like Philip Seymour Hoffman makes the most of his scenes as Lester Banks. who's this real guy, like this real rock DJ. Um, and he, he's, he's great. His, his delivery of the line, the kids on drugs at this, in this one scene is just amazing comedic line delivery. Um, make, makes you miss Philip Seymour Hoffman for sure. Francis McDormand, amazing. Kate Hudson, totally understand why they both got nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Very glad this movie got the screenplay Oscar, got something because uh, I think it, I think it deserved it. And it, it. It is one of those movies where like the you can sense the authenticity in it. Like there there's just a specificity about it that like you feel like this movie could have only been made by someone who has experienced these very things. And obviously it was right. Cameron Crowe did the same thing. He was covering he was working for Rolling Stone as a young kid. He was covering Black Sabbath and some other band. And all I think the Almond Brothers was another band that he um, covered. Um, and and the film is all the better for that, right? It feels so authentic in its portrayal of the the rock star rock star lifestyle and the way that this kid William who um, you know, doesn't have much to connect to in his own life, gets drawn in and seduced by that, even when, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman and his mom, even when these outside forces are like, the one thing you can't do is get drawn in by them. Um, and, you know, kind of gets screwed over in the end, but there's a happy ending. Again, I'm not going to say too much because uh, Scott, for some reason, hasn't watched this movie, but um, 
it, it's it's a masterpiece. It is one of the great coming of age movies. Um, I can't imagine there's that many people out there who don't enjoy it. Like it is it is one of those crowd pleasing films that just like once you sit down and watch it, you're gonna like it. It might even be one of your favorites. It it, it again it speaks to a lot of people personally, like it speaks to me um, about the power of music and, and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I, I I love it to death, and I I you know I'll never get tired of it. Yeah, I'm sure there are some spoil sports out there. The film only has an 89 on Rotten Tomatoes, but it does have a 90 on Metacritic. I mean, the film is universal acclaim for sure. I have not seen it. I'm looking here at the Wikipedia page for the film, and I uh, it doesn't talk about Black Sabbath, but the Allman Brothers, Led Zeppelin, the Eagles, Leonard Skinner, all these you know obviously really famous rock bands uh, and the like. Well, I I should say rock bands of of a different of different flavors. I should say. I mean, the Allman Brothers is not Mm -hmm. traditional traditional rock band by any sense of the imagination. But yeah, no, look, I. Added to the list of films that are on your list that I should see, um, and like, look, like this conversation we're having here is like, man, should I just like, you know, close out of the stream and just like spend the next, yeah. you know, seventy two hours watching? Yeah. yeah, exactly, watching these like two to three and a half hour mix of downers and coming of age. I was gonna say, put this after you watch Schindler's List because yeah. this, this will bring you right back out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that the power of Schindler's List is that you probably should sit with it for a little bit and reflect. Oh, uh, I know you're only joking, but yes, no, I, I think that's a a good point. And uh, look, I hope that I will get to it sooner rather than later. I mean, look, this is probably the time to get to it, right? Like, it's not like we're watching a bunch of really exciting mm-hmm. uh, new movies coming out, and yet it hasn't <laughs> happened. So, oh, well. Indeed. Uh, all right, Scott, you're number four. All right, number four. It's uh, another sci-fi film. I think we're getting like a strong sci-fi flavor in my top five, which probably just speaks to the kind of films that, that I like. But this one, Scott is one that, you know, I tried as I, as I made to convince you to rewatch and finally got you to do it. And because of how much I had praised it over, you know, pretty much the entire time we'd been doing the podcast both on and off air, you know, you were like, okay, I'll give it another shot. We'll see if I like it more the second time. And lo and behold, it's, I'm sure you felt this way when I've watched movies like, you know, everybody wants some or boyhood when we watch it together when you just feel really, really vindicated. Midsommar was the one I think where I like, couldn't believe that you also had loved it when you came out of it. Like as much. Yeah. yeah, I still don't understand why you don't think that I would like something like that, but I think that it it speaks to maybe like the, you're not necessarily being, Oh yeah. The genre and not being as aware of things that were like, I don't know, like really, really, like would really speak to me in the film and experiences that I'd had in other ways. But uh, yeah, like this is one of those films like when I, when you texted me or i read your letter about whatever it was like after you watched this film and you know i felt like really vindicated because you know you gave it five stars you were totally on board with what i was talking about maybe not to the same extent right but very on board with what this film was doing and that is arrival uh, a film from 2016 from yep. denny villeneuve starring one of the goats amy adams with one of the people who's like i don't know another person probably close to getting canceled at this point jeremy renner um and yeah like in this and this film is one of those sci-fi films that I think, you know, we talked, it came up a couple times on our interstellar podcast, which people can listen to uh, later this week and next weekend. And it, one of the things is that like, it feels like it's a real compliment to that movie because interstellar is this like really, you know, high, high concept space opera film that you're going out, not just deep into the Milky way, but deep, deep into the universe, like going to a completely different galaxy, things like that. And, and there's no aliens in it. It's like very grounded in some ways, even though it's like really crazy and out there, it's like a very grounded experience uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. And, and Arrival feels like the opposite, right? Like you don't ever leave Earth, but there are aliens and these aliens are freaking weird looking. And the experience that you're having is not you're trying to 
you know, discover or defeat them or whatever it is. Like you're just trying to communicate with them. And I think that is like such an amazing concept for film. It, it sounds like super boring. Like half of the movie is just Amy Adams trying to communicate with aliens. Uh, but something about it uh, just works. And that's something that is, is something that I can really put my finger on. And one of the things that just struck me as some of the best storytelling I've ever seen in a film is the way that this plot unfolds. There is this sort of high concept sort of mystery element to the narrative that's being shown is that there's a lot of, you know, flashing. So what seems like flashbacks uh, happening or some sort of like uh, fast forwarding or flashbacking to different points in time. And that is a real big mystery. I don't want to ruin it for people who maybe haven't seen it, but like it, that is just so critical to what is happening in the film. And there is a moment, I think, for everyone in this film when you realize what's happening in those scenes, when you realize what this film is going for and the narrative that it's telling, where everything clicks. And I think it is that sort of organic storytelling that comes together that you're not told, you're not ever told really what's happening. Or if you are, it's like far after you've discovered what's happening in this really um, powerful and organic way uh, of what's going on. And it just is amazing. It is the best storytelling I've ever seen on screen. And I give full credit to Denny Villeneuve. This isn't an original screenplay by him, by his imagination, but the way he's able to tell this story uh, for, for, you know, for this, for this mother, for this woman who is, you know, this linguist who is trying to communicate uh, with aliens who had develops this relationship with Jeremy Renner's character as they try to just discover what is it that these aliens want after landing. And like, I forget what the number is like 12 or 13 different places on earth like what like what's the point here what are they threat are they a threat are they going to destroy us what are they going to do and i think that it really plays with a lot of tropes of this sort of sci-fi very specifically alien genre of films and really turns them on their head in a lot of neat ways and i just really put it in the i really hold it in the highest regard for not only the performance you get from amy adams um but also from the screenwriting here the screenplay is amazing and the way the story unfolds on screen like i said i've already said said this already but just to repeat myself the best storytelling i've ever i've ever witnessed in, in cinema wow uh high praise and yeah scott it's a masterful film um and i think what changed my my tenor on it maybe it was just the time at the time at, at which i watched it because yeah it's funny a lot of people talk about how when they watched this film right after it came out and it was right after trump got elected and it was it mm. um Mark Kermode in particular, who's my favorite film critic, you know, kind of makes some connections between the film and, and just the fact that the film is really like sort of comforting and soothing oddly in, in a, in a weird way at, in times where it seems totally. like the world is coming apart at the seams. Right. And, and so that's why I think it really, and, and I did see it when it came out, but I don't know, the connection never really hit for me at the time. Yeah. Um, but it hit for me now, like, right. I watched this towards the beginning of quarantine when, people seem to be more divided than ever. We're really in this, you know, worldwide crisis, worldwide emergency. And there's something about this story and the way that the world, you see the world coming together and uniting to try and solve this unique problem of, you know, how do we communicate with these aliens, right? Like it, it's, it's, it's a compassionate sci-fi film, right? It is, it is not like we're going to kill the aliens. The aliens are going to be a dangerous force. It's like, how do we, how do we understand them? Uh, like, how do we understand the other, um, which obviously is something that applies to our culture outside of the context of aliens, obviously. Uh, and then just the idea that the tragedy makes us human, right? The, the decision that Amy Adams makes in the end, right? Uh, again, I don't want to say too much for people who haven't seen the film, but 
the conscious decision that she makes to to undergo something that is is tragic and disturbing and that no one would ever want to undergo but she chooses to undergo it because uh you know she, because she she treasures certain experiences and she feels that she is uh, made into a better person, maybe because of the the tragic experiences that she has had, uh, and in particular this one tragedy. Um, and I think there's something really, really powerful about that, especially yeah. when you're watching it in a time of you know tragedy in a way. Even if I haven't been personally affected by COVID, I mean, I ha I have been in some ways. Not not like the disease sure. itself hasn't affected anyone I really know, but um, but yeah, it 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 hit for me at the right time, and I now see. I get it now. I get it. I think it's a wonderful film. Yeah. I mean, it's a really tight cast. I mainly talked about Amy Adams because I think she really is the rock of this film. But I think Forrest Whitaker and Michael Stuhlbarg are both really good in this film as well, who are really the only other two significant, I think, characters in the in the film outside of Jeremy Renner and Amy Adams. And it like it's it is amazing. And I think that what you're talking about in terms of a soothing film in some ways really speaks to the fact that the one Academy Award that it did win, which you know, may or may not have just been a token award that it ended up winning, but it won best sound editing. And I think that speaks to what the film was able to accomplish with it, with its sound design and what you're able to get on screen. Cause yeah, I've never really thought about it in that terms, but when you say that you're right. Cause like the score is very soothing. Mm -hmm. It really is a movie that sort of puts you at ease and arrests you with what's going on on screen less with the music. And in some ways it even feels like what you're thinking the movie should be is at odds with the score that you're getting. And it works really well because it does it does keep you uh, oriented around this sort of subversion of what might be typical alien tropes. And totally. look, it's a it's a film that I don't know if I'd call it perfect, uh, but the ways that matter most to me, it is perfect. So it's really good. Yeah. Um, speaking of perfect films, Scott, my number four. Uh, Joker. You knew that that Richard Linklater was going to make an appearance here, right? It would there be is. my top ten, if not for my favorite director. Uh, and you know, picking my favorite film from him is kind of like picking what I imagine like a parent trying to pick their favorite child is like, right? Because there are there are five of his movies at least, probably that I could have put in this top ten, but I chose Before Sunset because it is to me the the zenith, right? It, this is this is the best one. I think it is the best romance film ever made. It's the most romantic film. I've ever seen. Um, and it is perfect. Like I, I think the next three movies on my list in particular, that my two, three, and four, I, I would consider them like, I guess the, the term I would, I would know them is like witchcraft movies, right? Because everything works together so perfectly, so seamlessly, so well, that it seems like some sort of supernatural force had to be, have been involved in the making of the movie. Like it doesn't seem like humans could have created something that is this perfect. And that's how I feel about Before a Sunset. I won't talk about really the structure of the movie too much because Lessons from the Screenplay has a great, like my favorite video that's over on their channel um, about this, the structure of this movie that I think illustrates how it's so brilliant, right? Because like, these are the type of movies that it's solely dialogue driven. It's solely these two characters. You could think like you could watch this and think, well, nothing happened. They just talked. But I think when you, when you watch this video, when you understand what Linklater is doing and how controlled everything in the movie is, you realize, no, there's so much going on. Like in every single glance between these characters, there's, there's something that's being said. That's, that's what I love. Like it, there are no, no, no movies compared to the whole before the before trilogy as a whole that in which a nonverbal glance uh you know not nonverbal expression means so much as they do in these movies like before sunrise the first movie obviously has the amazing um scene in the record store listening booth where not a word is spoken they're just you know 
catching each other's eye and looking away. Oh, it's so good. Um, but I went with sunset because I think yeah, it's 80 minutes long. That's why you went with yeah, that. Well, yeah, it is. It is extremely tight and, and, and well done. But, um, uh, this this film just is so uh, it's such a warm film. Again, it's another one of those you feel like you're hugging yourself. For those who don't know about these films, it's a trilogy of films following a couple played by uh, uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, Jesse and Celine. In the first film, they meet on a train by chance on the way to Europe, or while they're in Europe, and they spend a day together. And then the next film, Before Sunset, takes place nine years later. Um, Certain events have happened, but basically they're they're reunited after nine years. And there's this question, like so, so much of the first film, like you, you look at the first film and you think, oh, this is kind of a will they, won't they film. But actually, I think there's really no suspense about will they get together in the first film. This film, Before Sunset, is the will they or won't they film, right? Because it's now been nine years. As we learn, they have lives now. They're both in serious relationships. There are a lot of things which are... Uh, you know, extenuating circumstances which are suggesting they should not be together, they cannot be together. Um, and so that tension, I think, is a lot of what drives the movie along, along with the incredible dialogue, right? Like, I think this is Linklater at his peak in terms of writing, where, like, you go from the most, like, um, superficial conversations between people to, like, something incredibly meaningful and philosophical, and you don't even realize how you got there, right? Because you're just listening to people talk naturally and the conversation flows so naturally and like it shows that that ethan hawk and julie delpy helped him write the movie right because like, that's what i was gonna say it's yeah. it's like one of those unique movies where like basically the three people in the film that matter the director and the two leads like they all wrote the movie together yeah. like it's it's such a unique film in that way yeah and i've said it before i'll say it again scott best ending in film history um and if you've seen seen the film you'll you'll know what i mean like the 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 place that the movie chooses to end um it, it can't it doesn't get any better than that and, and there's there's something so satisfying about that right when you've watched a movie and you're loving it so much like you're like this is this is so great this is one of the best movies i've ever seen they just got to stick the landing now and then they stick the landing in a perfect way and and uh, before sunset i think is the ultimate example of that um please watch the whole trilogy it, it's it's an it's the best trilogy ever in my opinion um and i think the first two films will make you feel really good the last film Maybe not as much, but I think it is very necessary um, to the story that Linklater is trying to tell. And just uh, the symmetry between the films is unbelievable. Like, that's why you got to go watch YouTube videos about this film to see, like, how certain images, like, uh, are are reciprocated or how, you know, you see the perspective shift over over the, the course of the three movies. Like, again, I, I don't know how he was able to make everything work uh, together so well. It, do, it does feel like some sort of cosmic force had to be involved. It's almost like he created it and it wasn't real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's 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 trite. Uh, I obviously don't mean that. Um, yeah, no, like it's uh, it's on the list. It's on the list mm -hmm. with all, all of them. Three of them are on the list. That's right? what I said with all of them. Yeah. All of them are on and, the list. And please watch them in order, right? Like even though I go with the second one here, like I, I don't think that anyone would watch them out of order. But yeah, I was like, like, why would you do that? I, you know, people do weird things. I think that you will not feel as emotional and you will not, you will not love this movie as much as you should. If you watch it, um, Scott before, Harvey telling you what you should and shouldn't love. That's right. Uh, before you, uh, before you watch, uh, before suns, uh, before sunrise, um, I think you have to watch both films for it to work, but get the criterion release and you can watch all three of them. That's true. Cause they're all packed together, right? They are. I own it.
Big flex. Oh, right. yeah. Let's go over here. Let's hear your number three film, bro. Yeah, number three, I promised more Leonardo DiCaprio, and yeah. you're going to get more Leonardo DiCaprio with my favorite crime movie of all time. It's The Departed. Departed. Yeah, it's uh, I, I don't know if I should call Boston my city. I've lived here for three years now, almost. But uh, yeah, this is a film about Boston, about Boston crime, and uh, I mean, corruption in general probably is what this film's about, but it is a Martin Scorsese-directed Leonardo DiCaprio starring, I guess I should give Matt Damon credit too, because He's decent in this film. <laughs> and uh, yeah, with Jack Nicholson as well, Vera Farmiga, Mark Wahlberg, Martin Sheen. I can keep going down. Anthony Anderson is in this film. James Badge Dale is in this film randomly. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some other people. Did I say Alec Baldwin already? He's pretty funny as the, as the, is he like a police chief or sergeant? I think, I don't, so, yeah, I think, so. I think he's a sergeant. I don't know if he's the chief. Um, one of the two. I think Martin Sheen is the chief, but yeah. No, yeah, that's a good point. Martin Sheen, well, for part of the movie. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, now th- this is an incredible film. I remember the first time I watched this again, another film I was probably too young to watch when I watched because this this one's a graphic one. Uh, but no, it's it's an incredible film on so many layers and especially coming from a director like Martin Scorsese, who like, I don't know, like he made his name on crime films, right? Like it's what he's known for. Uh, and the way that I think he's able to really bring it together in The Departed and I don't know, like I, this is probably a minority opinion, right? Like this is this is not widely thought to be Scorsese's best film even though it, it did win best picture right like it, it was the it was the one the academy gave gave him the win for um probably in honor of a longer history and yeah. career of film at least that's what some people would probably well, and, argue and if you watch the the when he was awarded the award right like they had steven spielberg george lucas and francis ford coppola g- giving out the best director award. it's so, like they knew they knew exactly what this was and they brought in like his three three of his best friends right to give him the award yeah uh, and, and so it, it was kind of like a ceremonial like look we know we've screwed up all these years let's give it to you now yeah look but in my opinion i don't think they did they didn't i mean yeah sure they screwed up in past years but as i i think it's wrong to give him crap for not deserving it for this film because the departed in yeah. my opinion is in a truly truly phenomenal film i think I think it, it might be DiCaprio's best performance, in my opinion. I think it's just truly remarkable. I mean, he's done, I've already talked a lot about him here, so I don't need to necessarily rehash all that, but he's done a lot of very dynamic things over the course of his career. But I think this is maybe the one that just really, every time I watch it, it really just sucks me in the most because he's someone who isn't really sure, you know, what his purpose in life is. He, he is a, you know, a Boston like police department officer here, but knows that like, maybe he doesn't completely fit in. Maybe he's not the perfect fit for that. And so he's given this assignment to go undercover with, with the, uh, I guess, is it the Italian mob? I'm not even sure uh, actually what it is in Boston. Cause it's not Whitey Bulger. I can't remember it's South. Oh, it's Irish. It's the Irish mob. Of course mm-hmm. it's the Irish mob. It's shipping up to Boston. It's in the, it's in the stupid. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, obviously it's the Irish mob. So yeah, no, so he say, and it is this epic tale that I, it's adapted from an is it Israeli? I forget what it is like Infernal Affairs is the name. I think of, it's I think it's an Asian. I can't remember. Maybe it's like a Japanese or Korean film. Maybe. Yeah, that sounds right. But basically, um, yeah, it, it, it's a film that's adapted. So not necessarily an original uh, concept here, but it is adapted, and it's not only adapted effectively; it's adapted phenomenally. And what you get is this tale of a uh, corrupt police officer who's really uh, working for the Irish mob. And that's Matt Damon's character. And you get this police officer undercover with the Irish mob and Leonardo DiCaprio and the cat and mouse game that is played over the course of the film between these two people, along with 
the head of the Irish mob, played by Jack Nicholson, which is just, I mean, perfect casting in my opinion. And then the Boston police force with between Mark Wahlberg and Alec Baldwin and Martin Sheen, all these other people over here who are trying to catch the mob. I think it is just really like, it's just like perfect setup for the story that you're unfolding. And not only is it, I think we'll explore some really interesting themes. Again, there's some mental health themes explored in this as well. I think there's a sense of belonging, some sense of gaslighting as well in the film. There's a lot of really interesting stuff that is kind of surprising. Like, like there's like one or two critiques of the film that I'm, that I might have, but really I just am kind of in love with the story. This film is telling, and maybe it was just a right place, right time kind of moment for like, this is the film that hooked me. Uh, and, and really just feels like the pinnacle of this genre for me. And I don't know if I'd say it's a better film than something like the Godfather or maybe even other Scorsese movies. Uh, but it certainly resonates with me the most. And not only is it a phenomenal story, phenomenally acted, phenomenally directed, but there's some really funny lines. Like this film is like genuinely funny, uh, as well. I mean, I'm really not a big Mark Wahlberg fan at all, but he has some freaking hilarious lines, uh, in this film and some of his, interactions and back and forth that he has just feels like so Mark Wahlberg. I mean, like he's literally like, I feel like he's like made a career off of that sort of like humor and wit that I don't think works at all. Well, in any other movie that he's done yeah. it in, but for something about this setting something about this film, it works perfectly in and the 10, like the intensity and the pressure and especially like the last 15 to 20 minutes of this film. I mean, talk about, uh, you know, twists and turns that knock you off your feet. I think by the, by the end of the movie and they just keep coming and, just in case someone hasn't seen this film, even though this film is now 15 or 14 years old, uh, I won't spoil my nickname, my, what I like to call this movie, because uh, it's obviously a huge spoiler for the end of the film. But uh, maybe uh, maybe I can bleep it out. But I, I actually, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll bleep it out here so we can laugh about this, Scott. But I do like to call this film the movie where... Hmm, that's true. And truly remarkable moments, too. Yeah, uh, I love The Departed, Scott. It's probably my favorite Scorsese film as well. Like The Untouchables, like I don't think this movie has as much going on beneath the surface, probably as like uh, a taxi driver or Raging Bull or The Irishman, you know, some of these other Scorsese, uh, you know, epics have. Um, but I don't know. I probably enjoy it more for that. I think it's just uh, entertain, you know, incredibly entertaining cops and robbers. You know, there's all this double crossing and stuff going on. It's a great yeah. mob film you know, great actors just, you know, having the time of their life, chewing scenery. I mean, Jack uh, Nicholson, especially is just oh, yeah. Oh, having yeah. the time of his life in this film. His last, his last great performance for sure. Jack Nicholson. Um, I mean, he hasn't been in a movie since 2009, but um, yeah, but we won't talk about it. How do you know on this podcast at least? Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, the, the departed, it, it's, it's a fantastic film. It's a lot of people's it's, it's in their favorites. Um, so I think first, I, I actually don't think this is in my top 50 favorites right now, but it's probably in the first 10 out. Like when I do my top 100, it will be in that 50 to 60 range, I imagine, if not higher. Like I might actually, it may have been an oversight on my part not having it in the top 50 because I love it and I've watched it several times. Well, I'll let you know. It is an oversight. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. All right, Scott, we have arrived at number three and it is time for me to gush, I guess, a little bit more about Little Women, um, which is- Here it is. My number three, and look, I know people are going to say, this is a 2019 film, and it's your number three film of all time. I've seen the movie seven times, people. Um, and that yeah. is... Like, I've been telling Scott every single time that he needs to chill, but he won't chill. He won't <laughs> chill about it, guys. I And like, look, if you talk, take the films in my top 10 and like average out how many times I've watched each of them, 
it's probably close to seven times a piece, right? So like, I think that I have already watched this film enough times to justify it. I don't, not that I need to justify it. Again, my favorite is my favorite, but uh, to justify including it at number three, um, it's it's perfect. And I, you know, I think what I what I have discovered is that it's it's actually a strangely a, a much better film on rewatch. Like I I, I agree. Um, I don't know if you would necessarily think that just from looking at the type of movie that it is or after you see it once, but like seeing it once, obviously I knew the story, but I was just trying to like follow along with the story. People who won't know the story, obviously will be trying to follow along with the story. And obviously I loved it. I thought it was incredible. It was my favorite film of 2019 after I watched it the first time, but it was only after I watched it the second time that I started really paying attention to what Greta Gerwig does here. And I think that is what elevates the movie to, you know, one of my all time favorites is seeing how, perfectly constructed again almost as if aided by uh supernatural forces the film is and I, i'm at the point with this movie where i can't even really like like i can recite all of the points about oh you know she breathes life into you know new characters and or to characters who haven't before like amy and florence p's performance is so wonderful and you know the structural changes add for some great like symmetrical moments in the story like i can recite all those things that are all true they're all praises of the film but like to actually explain why this is my number three film of all time, like I have to do what no one would actually want, what no one would ever want to do, which is to sit down and watch the movie with me and let me at like every scene be like, okay, like look at this right here. And, and uh, you know, this will come back, this will play out later in this scene. And look at, look yeah. at how this image is constructed. Look, look at this plastic water bottle that they forgot to remove from the set <laughs> in the, in the, in the attic scene with all the, with well, all four of them and, and Timothy Chalamet. Like said, <laughs> no one would ever want to watch this and have me mansplain it to them. Uh, <laughs> but it is like yeah, that. Let's get Greta to sit down with you and get yeah. you to explain her movie to her. That is, that is how I feel about it. Right. Where, where there is, there is so much like perfection and, and like every scene, has is important like every single image every single line of dialogue i feel like you know plays into the major themes of the movie to where i'm like it's not it's not of like i don't think that you don't understand the film it's like i don't want you to miss anything right i, no. don't, I don't want you to miss what makes this film so great your backseat I, driving this film experience yeah. so i would be like look at that right there you see like that look that florence Pugh gives here's why that's important or whatever like that is that is the yeah. point that i am at with this film and like how, I, like I just want to be able to illustrate how like the I'm just a woman scene right between Florence Pugh and Timothy Chalamet, which is a simple dialogue based scene. How everything in the movie rides on that scene. How that is like the the center of all of the themes in the movie, and they come together so beautifully. Um, this movie, it, it, I will watch it several more times before the year is over. I think it just has that. It makes it makes you feel good. It's another <laughs> warm hug movie, I guess. Maybe we're hitting that that stretch of the the list, but um, I, I never thought that I would have a movie from 2019 ascend so quickly to my all times favorite all time favorites list. But it's pointless for me to try to deny it. Like I've never watched a film so many times in such a short amount of time, a, a short span of time as I have Little Women. Um, and yeah, like. If you've seen it, watch it again. Like that, that is my advice to you because like people have watched it and they're like, oh, I really liked it. And I was like, that's not enough. Like you need to watch it again. You need to like, again, it's the greatest movie ever. Um, it's like whiplash, and, like again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not quite my tempo. Um, yeah. Please watch it and watch it again. And I, I hopefully you'll get there eventually, but I, I think hopefully you'll get there. Eventually. Even if it's, it's irrational for me to expect that you'll, you'll get to the same level as I am at with this movie. But at the very least, I think 
what I want everyone to take away from this film is the incredible talent that Greta Gerwig is as a filmmaker. And the, the way that the film cons is constructed um, is, is a magic trick. And th yeah. that's, that's all I can, can really say. And uh, we're so lucky to have her uh, as, as a filmmaker. And I feel so lucky to be alive when she is making films and to get to go see, you know, Lady Bird and, and Little Women in the theaters are our experiences that I'll, I'll never forget. I saw this one four times in the theaters, by the way. Yeah. E equaling my Avengers Endgame number right there. And I guess 1917 is why I saw that four times in the theater. Uh, but yeah, look, this film is, 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 is great border bordering on masterpiece for me. I certainly thought it was better the second time that I watched it. Scott is ripping off his headphones and leaving. So I'll anchor the podcast. I'll guess what his number one, number two are for the rest of the time. You gotta watch it five more times and then you'll get there. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible that watching it five more times would get me there. Uh, but it is one of those films that I was skeptical on. I mean, if you go back and listen to the podcast, I was skeptical on it when we when we reviewed it. And I went and when I watched it the second time, I think certain things certainly clicked better for me. I think I appreciated a lot of what, again, to your point here, what Gerwig was doing and trying to do with a lot of the a lot of the things. I and mean, I think I may have even said this on uh, on the initial podcast, but I wasn't familiar with the the source material. And I think that it is inevitable that that will inhibit your first viewing just because it kind of could because because the, t the structure of them is so important to what it's doing. And what it does is really like there are trade offs, right? Like telling the story linearly, it ha has some pros and cons and telling the story the way that Gerwig tells it has pros and cons. I think that after watching it a second time, I think I appreciated the pros of that format a lot more because I understood the story. I understood what was happening. And it's not because I was confused about what was happening in what time period. Uh, I think the, like the, the, the color palette on the screen makes it very clear what time you're in, what time period you're in. And, and not even the just movie. the color palette. Like, I mean, that, that is even kind of a subtle thing in, in a way it, it's, it's like context clues from the dialogue sure. and yeah. the way that they're dressed and like the, their hair and everything like, sure. It's easy, in my opinion. But. Sure, uh, yeah, and, and I and I agree with you. I, that's not my complaint. It's just the the structure I think allowed for certain character. Like you end up having some very key moments and like parts of the film that feel kind of strange to have them in, um, and you don't under. And as someone who's unfamiliar with the story, not understanding um, why in this particular format, like you're introduced to this person that you know Joe is supposed to like ultimately be in love with, right? Like by the end of the film, and he's just nowhere to be found for like two hours of the film. Mm -hmm. Like you just don't you just don't know where he is, and it's different. If you, if you tell that story literally, and that's fine. Like that's just a trade off that it came with. It's one of the important parts of the film that I just like didn't connect with. Me. I didn't understand why it was and, such a big and deal. That's one of the consequences of the novel too, right? Because because sure. Bear is kind of an invisible figure for much of it, and it is so much more about her relationship with Laurie. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely about that relationship. And when you watch, it, you're like, oh, I guess this isn't happening. Um, but yeah, what, what able to what it's able to accomplish is just really, I mean, really phenomenal. We've talked about it a lot on the podcast. Yeah. Just like, you know, to what you're talking about, just like the symmetry of the images is like, again, on a first watch, you might just be processing what the story is. But like then on the second watch, like when Beth Beth's death, for example, like the the way that she juxtaposes the images of like the first time when she got really sick. Right. And Joe yep. was with her. She gets up. She goes down the stairs. Marmy turns around from the table. She sees that Beth is sitting there and she's, you know, relieved or whatever. And then you know, the same image, same image yeah. this time she turns and Beth is not there and that's it. Right. That's the, and then the next thing you see, they're at the funeral, right? Like yeah. she doesn't have to tell you, she just shows you that is like, you know, God level filmmaking right there that like, and, and it is so much more emotionally powerful than if, 
if uh, if Marmy had been like, she's gone or something like that. Like, it, you know, she she just gets it. Greta Gerwig. Yeah. Although I'd argue that Laura Dern could deliver that line because I think Laura Dern's great in this film. Oh, and yeah. one of the things that I appreciate a lot about this film is that, yes, yeah, Saoirse Ronan's great. Yes, Florence Pugh is really great. Eliza Scanlon's phenomenal. Um, Laura Dern is phenomenal. Chris Cooper is amazing in this film. Like, he's really, really good. The cast is so good in what Greta Gerwig was able, in terms of all these performances, she's able to, to really... I don't know what summon out of out of these actors and actresses, mostly actresses, if we're being honest, is very remarkable. I think it is clear she is very good at making this kind of film, and I can't wait for her to. I mean, if if she's making another one of these films, awesome! It's going to be amazing. If she's making a different film, awesome! It's probably going to be amazing, and I'm I'm excited for it. Yeah. Uh, all right, your number two, Scott. Oh, yes, I know two. I know what it is, but let's hear it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you do, because it's down. I mean, you know what the top two movies are. What a your lovely day, that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. What a lovely day. And, you know, not, I guess both of, both of my next two films, like on top two films of all time, are parts of franchises. Neither of them are the first movies in their series. In fact, this one, I think, is what, the fourth mm-hmm. film uh, in the series? And that is Mad Max Fury Road. This is this is a film that, even though it was, a, was this 2016 as well or 2015? I can't remember. I believe. 20, yeah, 2015 sounds right. Um, 20, yeah, 2015 film. I came to it late because I only saw it for the first time last year. So kind of like what you're saying here with um, sure. with something like Chandler's List here. I've I've seen it more than once, but uh, I came to this very I came to this movie more recently, even though it came out several years ago. And it's one of those movies where I was watching it, and there was a point in the film relatively early on where I'm like, what I'm watching right here is is one of if not the best action film of all time uh what they're able to do in the south in what the african desert uh out there in the middle of nowhere where i'm sure it was uh pretty brutal conditions because i doubt they were staying in you know (laughs) nice hotels uh after they were done shooting every night uh is remarkable i think you know i talked about tom hardy earlier on uh with with inception and uh truly a precursor to what he's able to do not just in the dark knight rises which also came before this but in this film as the I don't know the continuation or pre I don't even know where this film sits in the franchise, but I assume it's a continuation of what Mel Gibson's character was uh, earlier on in the in the Mad Max. Yeah, I'm series. not exactly sure either because I haven't seen any of the other films. Yeah, I, I'm not 100 percent sure, but wherever this film sits in the overall, fr- I could go look it up and maybe I should. Um, but wherever this fit, film sits, like Mel Gibson's like look, he is what he is. He's again another person who I can't believe hasn't been canceled yet uh, for all the crap that he that he gets himself into, but. What I will say is that as good as Mel Gibson may or may not be, and I, I think especially what Thunderdome is the is the most well received probably of the earlier Mad Max yeah, movies. The Road Warrior, which is the second. Oh, one. yeah, that's the one I was thinking. Yeah, the second uh, one. Anyway, as as celebrated as that film might be, I just think Tom Hardy brings brings a whole new level uh, to this Max Rockatansky performance. And beyond that, another you know I mentioned Amy Adams earlier with Arrival being a goat. Another goat. Uh, in the in the in the actress category, Charlize Theron is a whole different level of amazing. I think in this film, it's like one of the best performances of all time. Because like I went into this movie thinking like, oh, it's gonna be an awesome like it's an eco. It's like it's a strangely eco feminist film, action film that I've somehow missed for a while. But like this is a film that I need to see because this sounds super interesting, like an action film. I love action movies, especially with a heart to them, and it's gonna have this, you know it's going to have this weird angle of ecofeminism because that's what all my friends had told me about the film. And I go into it. I'm expecting this to be mostly about Max, which I mean, it's in the title, right? It's Mad Max. Um, 
but really this film is about, this, this film is about Furiosa. Oh yeah. And this film is this film at its heart is about Furiosa and if that arc doesn't work for you then this film isn't going to work for you. As cool as it might be, as cool as it's, you know, visual effects and stunts and, you know, set design, production design might be. This film's not going to work for you if you're not fully bought in to what um George Miller is doing with Charlize Theron's character of Furiosa and and, and even the wives of Immortan Joe, I think the movie yeah. is as much about them too, yeah. Right, we're going to put that because what what you need to be invested is that she recognizes the the what the basically the, the what is essentially sex slaves right to yeah. to yeah. immortal joe um sex slaves and rescuing them setting them free and bringing them to this this fabled land where she's from right the green place yes the green place and this is what they're setting out on the fury road to find is the green place like can they can they go far enough along the fury road to find where furiosa is from and I'll spoil this one for everyone just because I think it's impossible not to talk about why I love this movie so much when I'm talking about this is that they don't find it. What they find is what is essentially the bare, you know, the bare bones of what is left of that society of the society of, you know, this matriarchal society of women um, out in the desert. And, you know, they're able to band together. They're able to form, uh, you know, a bond with these people and progress from there because I mean, that's a spoiler, but it's not the end of the movie. Um, but one of the best shots in you know in the last 10 years of movies that i've seen recently is the scene in the desert when furiosa realizes that this place that she has fantasized about that she was told where she's from that existed doesn't exist anymore it's gone and that's the eco-feminist angle of the film about how this sort of uh depreciation of society this sort of like de-evolution of society is intimately tied with feminism and how um environmentalism and feminism are so intricately linked and there's lots of different reasons why that is true but it's just not it's just a message and a theme you don't expect to be in a movie where you have these like you know these you know rigged cars with long poles on them for people to swing back and forth and these trucks that are like like these rigs that are that are massive and have these water tankers and have all these secret compartments and guns and you know people are throwing like you know I don't know, spear bombs at different cars. Like this just wild designs. And at, at the heart of this film is a eco-feminist story. It's just remarkable when I found it. And I've been mean, I've watched it three times now and I've, and the next time I watch it, I've decided I'm going to, I'm going to watch the black and white version of the film. Cause that's, this is one of the movies where not only does it have its color version, which is the color or the version that was shown in theaters, but it also has a black and white cut uh, of the film. And I can, I can only imagine right now since I haven't seen it, what some of the what some of my favorite moments in this movie are like with a you know black and white color palette to them and how it might even in some ways enhance some of those moments and make them and amplify them and make them even more powerful and i just can't speak highly enough of those two lead performances in Charlie Theron and Tom Hardy but i also think Nicholas Holt is incredible as Nux in this film he's a war boy uh from a Morton Joe's sort of like i don't know child i mean he's he's a child of a Morton Joe right it's yeah. like they're supposed to just be his children um, and just some really stellar performances. Some some of the best action set pieces in any movie. I think you'll find them. I mean, this is really oh, one of the best a set piece, right? Like the, the entire movie yeah. is one long chase. Yeah, it really is, and it's pretty awesome. It's one of those films where you watch the opening scene, and the opening scene is is just Max being taken by Immortan Joe's war boys, right? Like he's captured and taken, and it's like it's a really weird start. It's like you're just like, what is this film? I don't know what's going on here. Um, but right after that, after you get the after you get the title credits it really goes in and becomes Furiosa's story and everything about it from start to finish is phenomenal. 
Yeah, I mean, this is on the li- on my list in the sense that I need to rewatch it because it's been several years. Um, I saw yeah. it in theaters, and then I think I saw it one time, like right after it came out on on digital, maybe. Um, but I haven't seen it since then. It's been a, a few years, um, and I, I just I, I'm pretty confident that I am gonna like it, love it even more than I did. I mean, I, I think it's a, a terrific film, absolutely, and and yeah, I think. You're not the first, nor will you be the last, to say it is one of the best action movies of all time. And I, I honestly, I don't think I can argue with that from um, what I've seen and you know what how how it is generally regarded. One interesting thing I did find out about this movie recently. Um, so Riley Keough, who obviously plays one of the wives of the Martin yeah. Joe, is actually married in real life to the guy who is is the flame throwing guitar uh guy on the back of the truck uh apparently they met on oh this God. and they're now married so that was no, nothing a- says love like a guy whose eyes have been ripped out and yep. blindfolded and is strapped to this rig playing a guitar that's hooked up to flames pretty much that's love uh, for you yeah watch this movie it, it's it's wonderful just the way that the the action scenes that are stylized is like you know it's nothing that i've seen before the the pacing and stuff is, is really cool. Um, yeah. if, if, if you, t- if someone told me that Chris Nolan made this film, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Let's put it that way in terms of the ingenuity around the set pieces, sure. but it was George Miller who fairly good filmmaker. And George Miller probably could, was the only one who could have made this. Um, but maybe. Yeah. All right. Get going George. We need, we need Anya Taylor joy as Furiosa. Yes. We do. <laughs> um, all right. My number two, Scott, you mentioned it earlier in glorious bastards. Um, this my favorite Quentin Tarantino film. Obviously, he's my he's my number two director, probably after Linklater. Um, I think this is the one where he gets it all right. Like this is, I, I honestly think this has become his most beloved film. I think even the people who aren't the biggest Tarantino fans are like, okay, yeah, this one's a masterpiece because I think this is everything that makes his filmmaking style so great without any of like the annoying ticks that get on people's nerves sometimes. And you know, that, that can't get on my nerves. Just, I think it affects me less, um, you know, as other people. Um, and it's, it's a movie for people who love movies, for people who, um, you know, are, are as big a movie fans as we are. And obviously Tarantino is maybe the biggest movie fan ever. Um, and I think that is, um, Okay, you can give me that face, but he's he's up there. But I think that is written on all of his films. Go tell Chris Nolan that. <laughs> well, I think that um, I think that this one it's it's so clear, right? Like movie making and movies plays a huge part in the story of the movie, right? Like it's so much of it, it centers around this movie premiere and the creation of this propaganda film, Nation's Pride, about Frederick Zoller's exploits, and um, this is him, you know, showing how powerful cinema can be, just as he did in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and showing, hey, look, we can, you know, do some historical revisionism here. We can, uh, we can, we can uh, do some historical revision. We can imagine if World War II ended very differently. And the way that he has always described it and the way that he describes Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, too, is like, yes, this didn't actually happen, but I see this as if my care, if these characters were alive, if these characters were real people during this time, this might have happened. This this could have been what happened, um, and and that's I think the the mindset that he sets out. Um, and just the the film is brilliantly constructed, just like I talked about with Little Women. Like all of the different segments, you know, he loves doing the chapter titles, bringing stuff into chapters, and he does that here. Everything comes together so well because you have so many disparate stories going on. You have what is going on with 
um, with Brad Pitt and the Bastards and their plan to, you know, uh, blow up the the theater during the premiere. And then you have Shoshana Dreyfus and everything that she goes through, which is maybe my favorite um, se- sequence. I don't think Melanie Laurent gets enough credit for an incredible performance here. Like what, maybe my favorite female character, if not character in, in movies is, is Shoshana Dreyfus. Like I, I love this character. And I think the, in particular, the scene in the restaurant when Zoller has taken her to meet Goebbels and, you know, some of the other third Reich members. And then Hans Landa shows up and, you know, he's, he's, maybe kind of tormenting her again. You don't know whether he knows who she is or not, but he, he orders the the strudel and he asks for the milk, right? Which is the same thing that he asked for at at uh at the the farm at the beginning of the film when when Shoshana has to escape and he's tormenting her and then um she's just trying to keep it together. And then that moment when he he walks away and she realizes she's she's gonna be all right. Like she he, he at least hasn't given away that he knows who she is and the strangled cry that she gives in like that brief little moment, that's just again, God level acting right there by, by her. I think, uh, the, you know, the, it, it's so brilliant. And there's so many moments like this, like when I saw this on the big screen last year, which was an amazing experience. Like I, I talked about like just at times being overwhelmed by how much greatness is, is in the film. Like the, the, every element works together perfectly. The dialogue is some of Tarantino's best. I mean, it, it's, it's everything that's great about Tarantino's dialogue. It's quotable. It's funny. Um, the, you know, he has those, dialogue-driven set pieces, right? Which he kind of made his name yeah, off. I mean, the the bar scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. The speakeasy. Like, there, yeah. you know, there are two of them in this film in particular, which are just all-timers. The opening scene, obviously, greatest opening scene in, in cinema history, I think, um, with, with Londa arriving at the farm and the discussion that he has with uh, Monsieur, Le, Monsieur Lepadit, the farmer, uh, and then, the, you know, the, how that scene ends. And then, yeah, the speakeasy section, which is, you know, 12 to 15 minute long scene, half of which is just people playing the heads up card game or whatever. And yet yeah. there's an amazing amount of tension in this scene. And, uh, you know, uh, I think August Deal is who plays the, that has a really great like one scene performance as this uh, this German guy who you know ends up ferreting them out and, and their plot and in particular Michael Fassbender as Archie Hickox and you know he gives himself away by giving the three fingers or whatever and yeah. you know it, it's it's so good like again an- another one that I just want to go through every individual scene and talk about how brilliant it is but we don't have time for that um, just go watch the movie for yourself it's on Netflix still I believe um, and. It is, it is Tarantino's Tarantino's greatest work and another one I'll, I'll never get get tired of. Like it, it's amazing to me that this isn't my favorite film of all time because of how how I feel about it. But you know, there's one that that means more to me. I think. Yeah, uh, I don't want to debate semantics too much because I don't know how how like what the general consensus is on this film now compared to when it came out over over a decade ago, but this film is actually like one of the least well-reviewed Tarantino films. It only has in the sixties on Metacritic. And I know that might've evolved and changed has, over yeah, time. I guarantee you. If, if you, yeah, if you, if you go look at like the letterbox scores, which I think is probably a better barometer right now, like this has got to be one of the highest rated. I think it, I think just the way that of the Tarantino films, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Pe- people in the film communities, at least that I am a part of talk about this one. It's, I mean, it's almost universally talked about as, you know, his best i think that yeah over time it ha- it has grown in people's estimation like i i would guess it probably has a 4.3 or 4.4 on letterbox average yeah it has a 4.3 yeah. yeah um yeah so it's pretty dang good <laughs> yeah uh yeah not not bad parasite what 4. 
Yeah, it's one it? of the highest rated films on Letterboxd, probably. Yeah, no, so that, that's a fair point. It was interesting to see how that film might evolve. And I think you could understand why, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, probably, why it maybe touched a couple nerves uh, with people at the time for right, rightly or wrongly touched yeah, some people's nerves. I don't think it's the subject matter at all, though, to, to, I think to the point that maybe most people have. Like, I think this is still yeah. absolutely a, a tribute to the people like Shoshana Dreyfus, right? Because, and, I mean, like, and the bastards to some extent because they're jewish as well but i think like this is their story right like in the way that that uh once upon a time in hollywood kind of gets to be sharon tate's story in some way like i think this movie is uh you know the revenge fantasy that jewish people never got right like they, they never got to to have this kind of movie uh when they were experiencing all of this oppression and this is him giving the power back to them yes it's a fantasy but they never even got to have this fantasy right yeah, I can. I still can understand. I think the complaints. I mean, I obviously don't have them, but I can. Un- I can understand them. I, I think, and it seems like over time yeah, that has just your Nazi balls. <laughs> Truly, uh, but I, look. I think. That, I think that with time, it seems like that has that has lessened, and I wonder if a decade from now, uh, the thoughts about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's irreverence, maybe to, to certain aspects of history. Uh, will lighten as well. I mean, maybe I think it's probably a good barometer to judge that, right? Like, I think people will probably lighten on that over time. Hopefully. Yeah, and I've seen this one. It's amazing. Obviously, I, I mentioned it in my top 20 earlier, so go check it out. Please do. Let's do it, Scott. You're number one. All right. You mentioned that this film had the greatest villain, maybe the greatest villain of all time in it, and who am I to disagree with you, Scott, because it's my number one film of all time. It's The Dark Knight, directed by Christopher Nolan, That uh, the second film in his Dark Knight trilogy. And look, like, honestly, I think that there's so many Nolan films that could be on in your top, in my top 10, top 20 list. I mean, we're doing a whole freaking series about how much I, basically how much I love Christopher Nolan. That's like what the series is really about. Um, and, and the Dark Knight is, is like the pinnacle of that. I mean, Inception is amazing. I love Inception, uh, but the Dark Knight is something else. It's a film that is not even strange. It's just like imminently rewatchable. It's a film that as soon as I finish it, I could start it back over again and watch it again and again and again. And that is because every element of the film is phenomenal. Like Christian Bale is the best Batman and shows it. Uh, Heath Ledger is the best Joker and shows it. And maybe, and to your point here, maybe the best villain of all time. Uh, I've never actually sat down and thought too much about that, but I certainly would put him in the conversation. I will say that if there's anyone who's going to rival him for me, Hans Landa from Inglorious Bastards, I think maybe is the only one who comes close and off the top of my head. Yeah. I mean, anytime you're putting a Nazi up as a best villain of all time, I think that it's got a fighting chance. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, the Joker is amazing. Gary Oldman. Look, I can list the whole cast. They're almost all incredible. I think that. Look, like maybe, maybe you can have some quibbles here and there. Uh, we certainly talked about a few of those quibbles uh, in in our episode on the Dark Knight and the Nolan Countdown. But really, this film transcends all of the all of the quibbles that you could have with it with just how impeccable of a comic book movie it is and how even even by the measure of martin scorsese i think that you could safely call this cinema and yes it's a comic book film it's a film about good and evil fighting each other but there's a whole lot more going on with this film than just being a battle between good and evil it's about there's a there's a I think what is what is the word usually it's a, it's a morality play in a comic yeah, book movie. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely a morality play, and I think that the, across the whole Dark Knight trilogy, and, and again, you can go listen to all of our episodes to to hear the complete thoughts on this. But throughout the whole trilogy, you have this arc of uh, specifically between the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises of 
what is the cost of doing what's like, what does it take to do, to do what's needed? Right? Like, do you have to do, do you have to get your hands dirty to do what's necessary to save the people? And then the dark Knight rises kind of completing that arc and telling you what, what the cost of that is. Right. And, and this is what it's cost. And this is what, this is what it has to do to, to, to pay for those costs and to pay what's due and to right those wrongs. And it's so compelling. Like it's just so much of this is so compelling. I mean, the conversations that Christian Bale and Michael Caine have in the film. I mean, I love the, the, what the African jungle analogy of, you know, why are these actually it's Burma. It's not Africa. Sorry. It's Burma. Um, why, you know, why these kids, you know, what, what about the rubies and this, this thief who's like stealing all these gems from these explorers and how they had to go find them. And that whole analogy, it's just like, when it's like, why is Michael Caine telling the story? Um, and then by the end of it, you understand, I think some you, men you just want to watch the world burn. Some men just want to watch the world burn and, and you really get it at the end. And I think that on the, like, this is a film that has so many layers to it. Like if you just want to turn your brain off and watch an entertaining comic book movie, you can do that in this film and you will have a really freaking good time. If you want something deeper and you want to like psychoanalyze some of these characters and think about what it means, think about the morality of these characters, you can do that. And there is so much there. It's so rich in that content. And it's really incredible. I think what Christopher Nolan, David Goyer, you know, Jonathan, Nolan, I think Jonathan Nolan's also involved with this, um, are able to come up with, with the script here and the story and then putting that onto the screen with some of the best comic book movie performances uh, from superheroes ever in terms of in terms of Christian Bale like I said Gary Oldman uh, Morgan Freeman Heath Ledger as the Joker probably the the pinnacle of performances since why he won the the Oscar posthumously I mean look maybe he wouldn't have won if he hadn't if he hadn't passed away uh, before the Oscars it, it, it's probably true that he wouldn't have won just because of the stigma of a comic book movie of a superhero film but it was the right like he deserved it he deserved it that year and uh, I think he hasn't quite it hasn't quite paved the way for comic movies that you that maybe people might have thought at the time, although the MC I mean, the MCU wasn't even a thing at that point. Right? It was 2006, 2005. Uh, no, 2008. The Dark Knight was 08. Yeah. Oh, wait. So the, so the same year as Iron Man. So the MCU wasn't really a thing. I don't, 2005 was Batman Begins. Um, maybe. I don't know. I'm yeah, lying about that, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might be lying about that. One too. I'm tripping all over myself here. Uh, yeah. The Prestige was 06 and Batman Begins was 05. Um, yeah. So it's. But it's just like remarkable what it was able to do. And I don't think the MCU would have been as successful as it has been if not for something like The Dark Knight. So as as I think, I mean, we've all, I mean, look, all these movies, not all, but a lot of these movies we're talking about are just so inspirational for movies that go, that that have come after them. And we've called those out as we've seen them here. And I think this is another one that legitimized comic book movies in some ways early on. I mean, I think we've had, that has progressed further and further over time with more movies that have been added to the genre. But this is one of the early contenders because like Spider-Man was fun, but did anyone take Spider-Man seriously? I don't think so. Uh, when the Dark Knight came out, people started taking these movies seriously. Not every single movie, every single time, but people started to take it more seriously. And you can understand why when you watch this. I mean, this is my favorite movie of all time. It's the best Batman. It's the best villain, the best director of a Batman movie. And what it, the end product there is something hey, that Joel is, just died. Okay. Like let's, let's give him some respect. Yeah. I'll give him some respect, but I think that you can just go on Twitter and see that people aren't giving him too much respect for the Batman movies. He directed. You're right there. Their pick is Zack Snyder. So. God, go away. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, like it's his, uh, yeah, the, the best director of a Batman film. And look, it's one of those, it's one of those unique situations where you watch Christopher Nolan make these Batman movies for seven years or whatever it was before the dark yeah 2012 was dark Knight rises you watch him make these movies for seven years and you're just like you're an amazing filmmaker and i want you to make more of these but also like go do whatever crazy crap comes into your mind as well like 
I wish his like one for you, one for me style was not like here's Dunkirk for you, and now I'll do Tenet for me. I wish it was here's here's a superhero movie for you, and now I'll do something creative like Tenet or Inception, uh, or Interstellar even too. And I think that is just uh, I I just wish Christopher Nolan could make more films at a faster rate. And I'm glad he made this film to say the least. Yeah, uh, yeah. You compare it to Scorsese. I think that's that's a good comparison. I think the film that it borrows most heavily from is Michael Mann's Heat, uh, which, if you know how much I love Heat, well, like, I was I wasn't necessarily comparing it to Scorsese. I was just saying I think Scorsese would call it cinema. Sure. But, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a fair comparison though, too. But um, yeah. Michael Mann's Heat, which, if you know how much I love that movie, then you'll know how highly I hold The Dark Knight. I mean, I had it in my top twenty. Um, yep. But yeah, this whole sort of good versus evil, this this question of how far will you go, right, I think is at the heart of both Heat and The Dark Knight and the Joker's evil plan to, you know, defeat Batman is to try and get him to break his, you know, his, his own ethical yeah. code. Um, and I think that's so interesting for a comic book movie, for a, a villain to not be concerned about, like, world domination or, you know, destroying Gotham City, even like like in uh, in Batman Begins. Um and and the dark night rises yes and so that's what i think makes the joker so unique and make takes this film to a whole nother level it is the greatest comic book film of all time like i i know that it's probably cliche to say that but there there's a reason that certain things are cliche and it's because they're true yeah look it's just it's just one of those movies again to go back to several movies i've talked about here it's like there's just a point in the film where you where I just can't help but just have a shit-eating grin on my face because the film is just so good on every level. Um, I mean, look, this, we haven't talked about the score or, or any of the technical aspects, really. But again, Chris Nolan's like unique mixing practical and visual effects is just remarkable what he's able to do with it. And the score by, is it, I think this time it's Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard. Mm-hmm. Both of them here, what they are able to collaborate and create is remarkable i mean just so many things about this film are are remarkable and like i said at the beginning i'll end my sort of blurb about it here with it is that at the end of this movie i could start it over and watch it again every single time yeah because the ending is so freaking good um one thing that chris nolan has gotten really good at is mastering those endings that make you just want to restart the film you just watched you could do that you could also go on and watch the next movie which i think is is very underappreciated especially after we rewatched it but go back and listen to our our nolan countdown series for more thoughts on dark knight rises and the dark knight um, yeah there you go um all right scott least suspenseful moment of the evening i think but uh, a few good men is my favorite film of all time um and- that might have actually been suspenseful for some people because you actually don't talk about it that much on the podcast. Really not um no. yeah maybe not I, I don't know i guess i just assume you know, no, no one can actually see when we're recording these, but yeah. I, I assume because I have the poster behind me at all times that, that people know. But yeah, A Few Good Men um, is my favorite film. Pretty much has been since I watched it for the first time. Um, and I wonder why you went to law school because of it, right? So. Not not solely because of it. But yeah, it, it it is a crucial movie in that decision. And I think that, look, OK, this movie is incredibly entertaining, right? Like the Sorkin dialogue has never sounded better. You have Tom Cruise at his all time best. You have. Demi Moore at his all time at her all time best. You have Kevin Pollack perfectly chosen in this role as Sam Weinberg. I keep going down the cast. Uh, you know, Kevin Bacon is great as the prosecutor. I think uh, Wolfgang Bodison and James Marshall as the clients. Jack it- Nicholson. Oh yeah, he's in the film. Uh, yeah, he, he's he's wonderful. Um, you know, you understand why he got Oscar nominated for this. But I think the movie is my favorite because it speaks to me personally on a couple levels and. and they have to do sort of with, uh, well, on, on on the first point, I think it is, 
the movie's look at ethics, I think, is really interesting, right? Because it's not just uh, an entertaining film. I think there is actually some commentary here on this sort of clash between like institutional ethics versus personal ethics, right? Because the whole heart of the movie is about these guys who are accused of a murder. Uh, you know, they shoved a rag down this guy's throat and their defense is, hey, I was acting under orders, right? It's it's the Nuremberg defense. Um, and, and therefore I should be absolved of responsibility. And Sorkin is really questioning, you know, he's adapting his own play here. He's really questioning, okay, yeah, that is what the law says, right? If you're acting under orders that you shouldn't, um, you know, you, sh you, you shouldn't uh, do this. It's, it's okay. Like you can be absolved of responsibility for doing crimes, like even like murder, but is that really the right result? Right. And, you know, we, we have this ending like uh, spoilers, I guess, right. The they're found not guilty of murder because they are, you know, not guilty of murder. Like Jessup admits that he ordered the code red, but they are found guilty of conduct unbecoming a United States Marine. And, at the end of the film, right? Like uh, Downey says, like, you know, I don't understand how, like what, what happened. I thought we, they said we didn't do it. I thought we were innocent. And, and, uh, and, you know, and he, and Downey just says, or, and Dawson just says, look, we, we let our country down. Like we let, we were supposed to stand up for people like Willie, right? We were supposed to stand up for people like Willie Santiago, the guy that they killed and we didn't. So there's this really interesting critique of the military as this like oppressive regime, which creates these situations, right? Where, you feel like you cannot do anything when you are given an order, no matter how wrong the order is, no matter how wrong it is, what you're being asked to do, you can't deny it or, you know, terrible things might happen to you. Hate, terrible hazing and, and who knows might, might happen to you. And so there's a really interesting critique there about, you know, the way, again, the way that institutional ethics represented by the military's code of conduct, uh, you know, that these code reds, these disciplinary actions are okay. But personal ethics and the fact that, hey, deep down, Dawson and Downey probably know, even acting under orders, it's not okay to do this. Um, they killed someone. Um, and so that is an interesting conversation. On a more personal level, I think the movie's portrayal and validation of the law as a noble profession is what speaks to me the most because this movie shows the role that all different types of lawyers can have in um you know, in bringing justice about it. In particular, I think the role that litigation can have, right? Which is the field that I want to go into that actually getting up in a courtroom and standing up for your rights is maybe the best way to achieve justice. And because Tom Cruise's character, right? Daniel Caffey, he's never been in a courtroom before. And uh, it takes Joe Galloway, right? The person who is not at, is not a strong courtroom lawyer, right? Like we see that she, she, the, when she tries to speak in court, she doesn't know how to talk to the judge or whatever. Um, but she has to spur him on uh, and say, look, this is the way to do what's right. You can't settle this case. You can't handle this in the same slick Persian bizarre manner in which you handle uh, everything else. As she says, um, you, have actually, you actually have to go fight, fight. Uh, and like, the, again, it is her, she has to be there in order to, um, to get him to actually go into the courtroom, but then he has to be there to actually win the case, right? Because he is so good, good in the courtroom. There's that scene where they go to dinner and she's like, you're an incredible lawyer. Like I see the way the jurors look at you. He talks to them in a way that, that she never could. So the way that these two lawyers who have very different philosophies, they're very different type of lawyers, the way that they work together to achieve justice uh, is is something that is very inspiring to me. And again, the fact that litigation, right, that, that Tom Cruise, he can't settle the case. He has to go to court. And 
the only way he can win this case is by going to court and arguing. And that's what I want to do, right? That that is that is my life motto or mantra right there. Like that is uh, so personal to me. And so I think that is why this film is my favorite. In addition to just you know all of all of the traditional elements that you talk about being great in a film. Um, and, and look. You know, everyone talks about that last showdown between uh, between Cruz and Nicholson being, you know, the you can't handle the truth being the all time great. My favorite scene uh, is the night before the trial, right, where Caffey yeah. has decided he's not going to go through with it. He's not he can't try the case. And he and, and Joe have a shouting match in the hallway. And he's, you know, saying that uh, don't tell me what I know and don't know. I know the law, which I love that line. And 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 then she's like, you know, nothing, Daniel, you're a used car salesman, uh, you know, and that your father wouldn't be proud of you. And that, you know, that really hits home with him because she's right, right? Like he doesn't understand this whole other side of the law. He doesn't understand about going into a courtroom and, uh, you know, is very blase about, so this is what the inside of the courtroom looks like after he finally goes in there. Um, it's amazing, Scott. Like this this movie, again, I can't foresee a world where it will not be my favorite forever in perpetuity, but I couldn't foresee a world in which little women would come out and, you know, yeah. in six months rise to, to my number three favorite film. So it may happen, but what will not happen is this film ever departing from the special place in my heart that it has. And, you know, the special impact that it has had on my life, even if I never get to take the bar exam and never actually become, <laughs> uh, it has defined a portion of my life. Um, and like, there's not many other films that can say that. So even if I can't sit here and tell you, I mean, like, I'm not even going to sit here and tell you it's a perfect film. Like, like I would maybe, you know, the last three films I talked about. Um, but I can't deny the impact that it has had on me. And when I think about my favorite, that I think takes precedence above all. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that that Kiefer William Frederick Dempsey George Rufus Sutherland is really happy that he made it into the your number one movie of all time. He's awesome in the film too. Like I didn't I don't yeah. think I mentioned his name, but like some he of his lines about like uh, I have two uh, books on my nightstand, Lieutenant Caffey, uh, the the code of the you know United States Military Corps and the Holy Bible, and so the two authorities that I answer to are my my. Uh, uh, commanding officer colonel nathan r jessup and the lord our god like he's he's so great as this uh you know kind of religious fanatic character who you know he he has he has two gods really he has god and he has his unit um he has the the military and i think he is the example of him and jessup are the example of of you know what is wrong with the military and what the movie is trying to critique about the military is the sort of indoctrination that it has had on yeah the blind loyalty yeah exactly yeah, no, I, I've seen it. It's it's been a minute since I've seen it, so I don't know if you I have to watch it again sometime. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking the same. I mean, look, I'm thinking that about every movie we talk about. I'm thinking about when we end this, going watching Arrival. So there you go. Even though I should go watch Dunkirk, I should go watch Dunkirk because we are talking. Famous, but <laughs> what'd you say? You should go watch Almost Famous. But get out of here. Get out of here. No, I'll go watch Before Midnight. Um, <laughs> I would hate you forever. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I look. It, it's I remember loving this film so much, and look, like, I mean, almost. I, I feel like very few people at this point will have seen this and not seen The West Wing. So, you're, I mean, you're going to be famous. Like, you're going to know Aaron Sorkin probably for something else if you haven't seen this, and probably even if you have seen this, you're going to know Aaron Sorkin for something else more more than this. But I mean, this is this is what catapulted him into, uh, like the what like the geography of even getting considered for something like the West wing or things like that, where first you know, film. Yeah. It, yeah, it was his first film and he's adapting his own play and things like that. I mean, he ultimately ended up changing some things when he did bring his play to, to Broadway. I think it didn't he, I think, I think I was reading that day. He changed some stuff well, going from 
if you read the script of the movie, which uh, this is actually kind of horrifying to me that this was in the script, because one thing that I love right, is that Kathy and Joe don't have a romance in the movie, right? Like it's it's set up like they should, but like I feel like it, their romance would never work based on the characters that we see in the movie. And apparently, like when I read the script, at the end of the movie, they just like make out in the courtroom, <laughs> which would have been terrible if they'd actually left that in the movie, but they didn't. Uh, maybe that's where yeah. Rob Reiner, I, I haven't even mentioned his name, but uh, yeah. as the director of this film was like, yeah, it's Sorkin, like maybe we can like rein this in a little bit and like, cause I mean, they, look, they go, they go out to dinner or whatever. There's like some little hints, but I think there's just the, the right notes of like, with that attention. Yeah. Right. Without them like actually going all the way through with it. Yeah. I'm going to out you on this though. The other day you said that Rob Reiner is basically anonymous in this film, but here you are praising him for keeping out. The- <laughs> I, mean, I guess that is one thing that he did, but yeah, like in, in the sense that like, you know, we talk about like Tarantino and in, in *Inglorious Bastards* or Greta Gerwig and *Little Women*. Like we're the Nolan, just all over the film. Like yeah. I, I think this is more about Sorkin than it is about uh, Reiner for sure. Well, you know what, Scott, you would say that. <laughs> but but like, look, he's made a, a lot of great films. He's a veteran, competent director, and I think that maybe we take for granted that the film talking about Rob Reiner. Yeah. 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 That the film works as well as it does because like maybe if you have a, a worse director in there, it doesn't work as well. And, and maybe just his general competency, competency, right? Like is what this film needs in order to, you know, just let Sorkin script do the rest of the work. Well, yeah. And I was going to, I was actually thinking about making that point is that like, if Aaron Sorkin directs this film, it's pr- like TBH, it's yeah. probably not as good. It's maybe. probably not as good. Especially if you think about like, I mean, one of the, look, this is something we never talk about because this is not the side of cinema or like filmmaking that we ever really talk about. I don't even know if you necessarily think about it that much, but like there's a reason why most people don't write and direct their own movies. And it's because they need a filter for ideas. They need to be kept in check. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, I mean, we'll see what Aaron Sorkin does with his second uh, directorial outing later this year. But like, I think Molly's Game is an example of someone that it's a good movie. I'm not, don't get me wrong. I like Molly's Game. I like Molly's game, but I think that if someone had kept him in better check a little bit, whether, you know, whether that's on the creative side in the writing department, or if it's on uh, the director side with actually putting the, the, the screenplay onto the, onto the screen and making the film, I think that the film could have been tighter, could have been a little bit better. And what'd you say? That's fair. Even though I do really like Molly's game too. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a very, very fun movie, um, which is maybe a weird thing to say about that particular film, but Yeah, I mean, it's supposed to be fun. But yeah, no, I, I think that it's a, like that combination for a few good minutes, especially what you're talking about the screenplay. I mean, I haven't read the screenplay, but if that's true, then thank God they get that out of the film. Um, that's really, really a godsend, uh, probably, because yeah. like like we talk about those moments, like the, those types of moments can ruin a film for you. Like it, it's not going to be it's a bad film or anything like that, but that happens. Like, is it even in your top top 10, top 15, top 20? Maybe not. Like it's, it can sour you. Those moments can sour you. Yeah, on I, can't, I can't imagine the the ending any other way, whether it's, you know, that you don't have to wear a badge on your arm to have honor or Kathy admitting, hey, the witnesses that I was threatening you with here by having them sit in the courtroom, they were going to actually say nothing if it got to the point where they were actually going to have to be called to the stand. Uh, I can't imagine the ending, like not having those moments. I uh, can't imagine Tom Cruise's tongue down Demi Moore's throat at the no. end of the movie. <laughs> What a nice note to end our podcast on. Most would not have stood for that in 1992. Yeah, probably not. I, I mean, look, people take liberties in the courtroom and in movies. <laughs> I, I I would like to think that I will never make out with someone in the courtroom. I, but again, I, I I don't even know if I'm going to be 
ever getting licensed as a lawyer. So. That doesn't mean you won't be in a courtroom, but that's, that's, that's fair. fair. I mean, look, after look. I, I, after I beat the rap for murder, I'm going to just make out with someone. <laughs> I was just talking about going to a trial. I wasn't even talking about you being the one who'd be on, 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 uh, on the wrong side of the aisle, probably. But look, I think the key takeaway you can take from our movies here is that both of our number one movies have very realistic court scene, courtroom scenes in them. <laughs> Obviously, with the Dark Knight uh, scene. Don't even go there. <laughs> Obviously, when when uh, Aaron Eckhart courtroom scenes aren't even that realistic, to be fair. No, that was the joke I was making. Yeah. Like Aaron, Aaron Eckhart taking a gun and saying, "No, Your Honor, let's finish this in the courtroom." It's just one of the most preposterous scenes of all time, I think. But for dramatic effect, I don't think Chris Nolan thinks that's real. Yeah, not perfect, but perfect to me. Again, that that is that is how I think about my favorite film. But there we go, Scott. Uh, Listen, I want to say here, thank you to everyone, not not only who stuck with us through this episode, if anyone made it uh, all the way to this far, yeah. um, but who has listened to this podcast, even if you just listened to this episode, even if this is the first time you've ever listened, or if you, you know, you, you're one of the few people maybe who listens fairly often, um, because, you know, as much as we talk about, like, we do this for ourselves, we do it because we enjoy it, whatever, yeah. I don't think we'd be here if it wasn't for certain people talking to us and saying, Hey, look, I really enjoyed the episode. Like I listened Definitely. to your whatever episode, like I, I've had my mock trial students or whatever have told me. And like, it is just a little boost to know that, Hey, there's someone out there who is, you know, rewarding all of the time that we have put into this. And again, I don't want it to sound like we're laboring to do this because we enjoy doing this, right? Like we enjoy watching the movies. We enjoy talking about them. Like they're guys, Scott loves writing those articles every week. Don't, do. don't you worry. He, no, I'm not being sarcastic. You genuinely love taking the Academy to task in your articles and movie theater yeah. chains to task. Yeah. But, but you are absolutely a part of this. And so we thank you so much for your support and we hope you'll, you'll be along for the next hundred, right? Because we're not thinking about stopping anytime soon. I said that, you know, we'll keep doing this as long as we enjoy it. And I think we still enjoy it for now. If, if, if movie theaters never come back, I don't know. I mean, the, the question, yeah. maybe uh, the answer to the question may be a little bit different, but uh, maybe, yeah, we, we've got, you know, on, onwards and upwards with some like it, Scott. Uh, we can't do love wedding repeat forever. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I can't wait to see what's next, Scott. Um, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? You can find me at, at Shelton 2013 over on Twitter. And I'm at Scarvy Dent. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to support our podcast, don't forget about our Patreon page, Media Plug Pods, uh, patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. Um, and even if you can't support us over there, check out our podcast wherever you know you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You know, we're, we're on all of those. All of our podcasts are, are grouped together for convenience sake. Um, so check them all out over there. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode of Some Like It's Got, episode 101, uh, on which we will be reviewing the new Netflix Charlize Theron starring action film, The Old Guard. Uh, until then, for Scott Shelton, uh, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, guys.